Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think of the prestige. No. Think of the respect. No, no, no. Think of the Tony. Tony, Tony, Tony. Hello, all you theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. We are doing our Tony coverage this month as we lead up to the big day itself, and Instead of doing predictions or reactions, because we've done a whole bunch of that, we're taking a quick break and we're doing some Tony history. But because this is Broadway Breakdown, it is indeed laced with opinions. My guest today is a writer. You might know his work from Dogfight. He is a French Woods boy, so we can only somewhat like him. We cannot love him, but we let him live anyway. Please welcome to the pod, Peter Duchesne. Hi, Peter. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Do you prefer Peter, Pete, Petey? I prefer Peter, but I'll take anything. Okay. Just call me at all. That's what we always say, right? So, Peter, we're doing something that's actually kind of odd for me. We're leading with positivity in this episode. I'm, <laughs> I am known for my opinions. I, I mean, I will fight for the things I love. I'm also not afraid to talk about the things I don't love. And because I talk a lot and this podcast is long form, I say it in very long paragraphs. But also, just, you know, 2023 is a time. And thus positivity is sometimes elusive but i said damn it we will be positive today and so you're joining us peter for the times that we felt the tony awards actually got the winner right and i'm excited to be here i'm excited to express some positive opinions myself i I, i'm very excited uh we looked over each other's lists and i'm sure we might come up with some others during this time so when i was telling peter everyone was that it's not just People who've won that were all like, oh, yeah, great winner, you know, because that's the list is very long for that. You know, uh, I think what I told Peter in terms of things we have to kind of try to cut out is, you know, saying, oh, yeah, uh, the Tony's awarding Sondheim best score for Sweeney Todd. That was a good win. It's like, yeah, no, no shit, Sherlock. Oh, you can also curse on this podcast in case you'd like to. That's fucking great. Yay. But I, you know, best score for Sweeney Todd. Pretty fucking easy. There are ones where it's a little trickier because, and it's hard for listeners to know because we all weren't alive for the entire Tony history. So we're mostly going off of the Tonys that we've been around for with a few historical ones that we can sort of look back on with their legacy and whatnot. But the idea is winners that it might have been a little harder to choose from and they did actually go with a really strong choice. Uh, Or someone maybe came in with a lot of momentum and then the other winner 
came in and won and just yeah it's worked out well for a lot of people so i look forward to talking about this and debating and agreeing on some things uh so on that note peter let's start with you because i just talked a lot uh let's start with one of your first choices for a winner that the tony's got right and why okay well thank you matt um when you reached out to me, the first thing that came to mind for whatever reason was Rebecca Tashman winning direction of a play for indecent, Mm -hmm. possibly because I remember the moment when I was watching it and thinking, Oh my gosh, the right person won, you know, the person I was rooting for won. And um, that does not always happen as we know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember feeling so thrilled that I felt like an artistic achievement that I really was supportive of could triumph in that night um and i think that the work she did also i mean she co-created the play you know co-conceived it etc i don't know the exact credit but um she was really woven into the fabric of that piece and i was thrilled to see her win despite some really tough competition in a pretty good year yeah this is a baller category now that i'm looking at the nominees we have uh sam gold for doll's house part two which honestly was my pick for best play that year i i adored that production ruben santiago hudson for jitney which was a stellar revival of august wilson bart share for oslo which was the best play winner daniel sullivan for the little foxes another strong revival from our chardonnay subscription house manhattan theater club uh i say that with love guys uh i think everyone in manhattan theater club knows that they are a giant bottle of chardonnay because we enjoy them uh but yeah this is a great lineup and I remember going in bar. So I, Rebecca won the outer critic circle. You said that's. That- yeah. But I think Ruben Santiago Hudson won the drama desk. Yeah. And ironically, not ironically, but uh, oddly enough, Bart share kind of went in that night with the momentum because everyone was so sure that Oslo was winning play. And it, I mean, it did. And it also won featured actor, but there Which was I recall a- being a surprise, actually the featured actor part of that. Was it? I, I, I having well, at least so, to me. Well, so well, so that's. Th- I was just listening to a podcast today, where, uh, you know, I'll just say it was uh friends of the pod Connor and Dylan McDonald, uh, sorry McDonald McDowell, doing their drama podcast, and they were talking about their reactions to the Tonys and things that they had seen, things they they had not seen, and there were some nom- uh lack of nominations that surprised them, and they were not performances or shows that they had seen yet. And having seen those lack of nominations uh, being performed, I thought to myself, see, there's there are some things that on paper make more sense. But but when you see them, you go, oh, I get why this person won. And for Oslo, I don't remember if he was a surprise or not. I feel like no one really knew who the frontrunner was for featured actor. But I remember seeing Oslo, not super loving it. But when his character came on stage in, I think it's act two, right? And he's like talking all about the waffles. I was like, oh, this guy like brings all the energy into the show. And it was just one of those moments where you go, I think he's going to win because if they're awarding Oslo play, he's going to be the performance they walk away remembering, not Jennifer Ely or Jefferson Mays, even though they are on stage all the time. So that made sense to me. But with this, uh, when Bart didn't win and Rebecca did, I remember being also very surprised because it didn't feel like there was any momentum for her. And that and it was just one of those moments, like you said, where you go, oh, that is such a good choice. And it wasn't a sure thing. You know? well, yeah, and I remember seeing on her face, you know, at least from the television camera point of view, some seemingly legitimate surprise. Yeah. I love it when that happens, when the actual, when there's an actual surprise on the winner's face, instead of just the, yes, that sounds correct. And then they sort of like walk up to the podium. Right. Like a bit Midler. Phew. Yeah. The one time that it happened that I, I appreciate was when Mary Louise Wilson won for Grey Gardens. She kind of just walks up to the station. She's like, yep, this is correct. <laughs> 
And she even says it in her speech. She says something along the lines of like, I've been nominated before and I've always wondered, should I ever win? But I think they made the wrong choice. And now that it's happened, I I don't think they did. <laughs> we stand a queen. Um, yeah, that's that's a great choice. Uh, we both actually have, speaking of directors, Christopher Ashley for director of a musical for Come From Away. And, from uh, the this, same year the same year they chose two good directions that year and neither of them uh won for shows that ended up winning the big prize yeah and actually i had a similar reaction when chris ashley won for come from away where i was not expecting that myself i had thought it was a race between rachel chavkin who i thought did a really great job with comet um and michael greif i thought who i don't believe had won so i maybe still hasn't won still hasn't um, won yeah uh, and I really thought it was sort of a two-way race there. So the Chris Ashley thing came from left field for me, but his work, again, it's so woven into the fabric of that piece, the transition, the the sort of storytelling aspect of it, the, the entire energy and tone of it really felt driven in some ways by that staging. Um, oh, and yeah. when then, you know, when I look back and see that he won on paper, I go, oh yeah, of course. Um, and I, I think that's great. Absolutely. Having seen Come From Away again, right after lockdown i was just sort of reminded of that show is kind of like a magic trick you know it's because it's a show that on paper shouldn't work and if you were to tell me sort of how they go about presenting it i would say like oh that just sounds you know a little too much to bear the the talking narration constantly talking to the audience that it sort of leads with kindness and it, it 9 is always sort of in the background and everyone's playing different multiple characters. And it's it reminds me of those like Tyler Ellis videos where he's like the musical that takes place, you know, two days ago and just things like that. But I remember seeing it for the first time in 2017 and being really delighted by it and thinking, you know, that the whole thing just sort of like came together in a really fantastic way that I didn't expect. And then over the years, I I didn't sour on it, but I was like, yo, no, I be I really loved it. I but I see why people would have problems with it. And then coming back to it after lockdown having just seen the dress rehearsal of Hades Town like two weeks prior and being like yeah that was that was nice to see a show again and then just fully crying at come from away I was like this show works this show works so well and Christopher Ashley's direction really is a major component of that just like the fluidity of it the the work with the actors the um the tone of the whole thing yeah I really appreciated that there was like a sense of storytelling theater without um, feeling gimmicky, like yeah. it felt very casually done, but precise. Um, and and to my eye, that felt like pretty seamless over the course of whatever it is—two hours and no intermission. Yeah, and yeah, we do have it, it is stagey. There's a lot of staging in it because I, I something that I always kind of talk about with people when we go into direction of a musical or a play is people get very hopped up on the visuals like, oh, well, what's the staging like? How creative are the exits and entrances? And like, it's not just about that. If you're having issues with a performer in a show, that's also something you have to tie to the director. They have their job is to make sure everyone in the cast is on the same page of what the show is, how they're telling it, that the rhythm is going well, that the uh, pacing of the whole thing is working. So I think that's something that he just did very well with the show, in addition to good staging, because everyone else here, it's this is also a very strong lineup. We do have Chafkin for Comet, who did a really lovely job. Uh, Greif for Hansen, which very good control of the actors, and also kind of uh, countering the schmaltz that I think can be there with Evan Hansen, as we sort of saw in the movie. He added sort of a bit of cynicism in there to make it a bit more gritty. Warchus for Groundhog Day, which is a show... 
I adore, and I love adoring it because when this show came out in this season, Peter, let me tell you, the friends I had who hated it and were angry that I loved it so much that I would go see it three times. Uh, mostly because I loved it. Also, it was just fun to troll my friends. And then we have Jerry Zaks for Hello Dolly, which was a very lovely revival. Uh, yeah, that was a good winner. Good winner. Let's do let's do another one of yours, shall we? Sure. Um, I'm going to jump around in time. How do you feel about that? I, I love it. Do it. Let's go back in time to like 1999. Um, I, and I'm going to pick best actor in a musical, Martin Short, who won for Little Me. Mm-hmm. Um, a, and beating, I think, the person that maybe you know, as time has passed that people have thought, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that Brent Carver didn't win a Tony for Parade. So Parade was that year. Uh, and so was Adam Cooper in Swan Lake, the Matthew Bourne Swan Lake, and Tom Wopat in And Get Your Gun, um, who actually had a surprising amount of momentum going into the evening uh, mm. because he was in the show that was open. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parade had long since closed. Little Me had long since closed. Both of them were at the you know institutional houses. They were not, they were limited runs to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brent Carver had won the drama desk. And I think... Um, it, hindsight has said, oh, this is Brent Carver's Tony. And I heartily disagree. Not only because I think Martin Short was really, really great in the show, and I have wonderful memories of seeing him in the performance, mm-hmm. but also because he gives one of my favorite speeches in the history of the Tony Awards. It's one of the funniest, most sort of personality-driven speeches, and it's completely charming. So I would be really sad if we lost Martin Short's Tony in 1999. No, it's a great win. The thing about, this is also, I think, the last time someone won for a closed musical. Because people have won for closed plays in the past, and we'll get to some of those later. But it's harder to win in a musical that has closed if you're if you're a performer. And I think Martin Short might be the last time that's actually happened. That would be wild if it's really been that long. That's incredible. Yeah, because it I happened twice thought. in the 90s. Yeah, it happened once with Martin Short with uh, Little Me, Andrea Martin for My Favorite Year. And I think those are the only two of the nineties. And then I think you have to go even further back after that to like Tommy tune and seesaw, or maybe Angela Lansbury and gypsy for someone who won for a musical that closed. Wow. That yeah. is not a, a sort of window or prison through which I've ever thought about that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, that's something that I was sort of telling people as we were going into this Tony's with performances being nominated and who could possibly win because, you know, when, I'm I'm so glad that, you know, Julia Lester got nominated for Into the Woods. I, I adored her performance. I was a little surprised, though. But now that Woods has had all these nominations, people are going, oh, well, what's the likelihood of any of those actors winning, of the show winning? And it's really difficult for a closed musical to get awarded in the end. They can get nominated still. That We've seen that happen with falsettos and, you know, with Amour and, and things like that. And, you know, my beloved Smile got a Best Book nomination in 1987. But it's harder to win because you kind of need to be around to rile up enough voters to want to vote for you. Because it's so much easier to get passionate about something that's right in front of you that you saw that week as you're casting your vote than something you saw six months ago. Uh, But so that just sort of tells you about the passion behind Martin Short's performance, that he was that well regarded in the role that... Uh, even though there was Tom Wopat who had who was in a successful revival at the time. Was Swan Lake still running at this point? I feel like it was just about to close. Maybe it was just about to close. Um, but he also 
you know, Adam Cooper didn't speak in Swan Lake. Yes. It, which I think does pose a challenge. Sure. Swan Lake was, but Swan Lake was also a cultural moment on Broadway. And I know it won director and choreographer that year. And it was just, it was, it, it was a cultural moment, but I don't think people were thinking of Cooper as the reason it was the moment they were thinking Matthew Bourne was the reason that it was the moment. But sometimes, sometimes people get swept up in the momentum in the thing that is the moment. So that could have always happened. Uh, but I just want to side note, because you mentioned Julia Lester, um, that I, I always find it interesting when like a role that has failed, like an like, sort of iconic role like Little Red Riding Hood and in, Into the mm-hmm. Woods that has failed to somehow get nominations for any of the actors who've done really great jobs with it prior mm-hmm. when it finally happens. Like the Sweeney Todd revival in 2006, like Manuel yeah. Felciano getting a nomination for a role that had been done so well before, but mm-hmm. somehow never got a nomination. Ruthie Ann Miles this year for The Beggar Woman, never been nominated totally. for that role before. Yeah, um, it's... I always had Ruthie as um, a possibility this year. And I said, you know, my only caveat of what could do her in is no one's ever been nominated for the Beck Woman before. Shockingly enough. Similarly, Julia Lester. So two in the same category. Exactly. It's just, it's fun. It's fun. And and Brian Darcy James, our very first Baker to ever be Tony nominated. Yes. It's, listen, these things do happen. And then sometimes we get people who win Tonys for the role that they created. And then like the first revival back, the person who plays that role isn't even nominated, which we'll get to with one of my Grateful winners when we get to the 70s, which isn't that controversial. It's more just, I'm not going to get to it yet. I just want to tease people. The reason why I picked it is because it was between this person and their co-star. And going into the night, everyone thought it was going to be their co-star. And I do think the rightful actress won in that musical, uh, especially because their co-star would win only like three years later. So it's all always balanced out for them. But we'll get to her in a second. Um, with Martin Short, yeah, this was also, so like, the interesting thing also, and this is why I want to talk to you about precursors, as you said, Brent Carver did win the Drama Desk, as did Carolee, as did Parade. Yeah. Like Parade. Well, Carolee tied. Oh, she tied with uh, Bernadette? She tied with Bernadette Peters, yeah. Okay, yeah. And Bernadette kind of went into this Tony's Not a Sure thing because she sort of overcame the fact that everyone thought she was miscast. This, you know, that revival opened and everyone expected it to be a disaster. And the response was sort of like, you know, it's not a natural fit, but she does pretty good. And... But that didn't still feel like enough of a momentum for her to win. So when she did win, it sort of felt like a really wonderful actress who we all love, who worked really hard to make this role work for her. Here you go, kid. You you did it, Joe. And it was a very nice moment. But similarly, I feel like her competition, I mean, she I don't know if she was the only one in an open show, but Cara Lee was there. Um, Sean, Sean, I think her name is Sean Phillips. I think it's Sean Phillips, Was there yeah. for Marlena. Yeah. Um, was there any, oh, and... um. Was it D. Hody for Footloose even? Sure was. <laughs> like, so I mean, Footloose was open. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. But I don't think that D. Hody was going to win a Tony for Footloose. It no. just wasn't in the cards. No. D- I love D. Hody. She has a nomination that bugs me because it took a nomination away from someone else who I thought should have been in there. We'll get to her. But, We're talking um, about 1994, but we'll go on. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I also I want to let everyone know that I uh, told Peter that we would not talk too much about the 1994 Tonys because y'all would be expecting it. But we are going <laughs> to talk about it a little bit because Peter and I had a fun conversation via text that we want to expand on. Matt, are you known for, forgive me, are you known for talking about the 1994 Tonys? I'm talking. I'm known for talking about the 1994 Carousel. Ah, okay. Because the 1994 Tonys were for me, it might be a little older than you, the Tonys that I first discovered as a child. And that is the ceremony I could probably do from start to finish. So first of all, I'm so glad you said that because I forgot to ask you at the beginning of the episode, Peter, what's the first Tonys you remember watching? So I'm glad that that was the one. 
Well, I remember watching 1993. I remember I asked my parents to tape it. And my mother said, sure, I'll tape it. You're going to think it's boring. And I watched it and I thought, this is boring. (laughs) And then a year later, I asked them to tape it again. And for whatever reason, it really clicked. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to see an Inspector Calls. I mean, I listen, I get it. When was the year of Kathy Rigby's Peter Pan? Was that 99 as well? 91? Well, well, that was the, the first one, but I feel yeah. This oh yeah. So it was the 1999 Tonys. This one that we're talking about, talking about right now. That was the first Tonys I remember watching, because I remember watching uh, the introduction for Kathy Rigby and Peter Pan, which I had seen on Broadway that year and was very into. I remember watching the You're a Good Man Charlie Brown performance and watching Chenoweth win. And then I remember the parade performance and I didn't know anything about it. And I asked my parents what it was about. They had seen it and they all they could all they were willing to say was it's sad. Don't worry about it. Like just it's a sad show. And that was that was the end of that conversation. Well, I had seen parade and, you know, I was, I don't know, 15, 16. I loved it. I loved Mm -hmm. it. I was I mean, like if you had asked me in 1999 in that moment, I was rooting for Brent Carver. Probably Mm -hmm. it's in sort of hindsight that I go. I think what Brent Carver did was awesome, but I think what Martin Short did is maybe even a little bit harder or rarer even. Yeah. Well, comedy is extraordinarily hard. There's drama. It's not that drama is easy. It's just, you know, to get 1,200 individuals who all have different senses of humor to laugh together at a moment you need them to laugh takes an amazing amount of skill and intelligence. Totally. Although, to be fair, it was in the Criterion Center stage, right? So it was like 499 people. Sure. But we'll take sure. it. We'll take it. He Listen, he did it once before in The Goodbye Girl, which was even harder because that was bad material. And that and who was... who did he lose to? Brent Carver. So, go. listen, it all balances out. It, I am not a believer in karma, but karma. It all it all comes uh, circling back. Okay. Uh, you know, actually... Oh, so... Two things. I do want to apologize to my listeners from last week. I mistakenly said that Stephen McKinley Henderson had a Tony. I had thought he had won for Joe Turner's Come and Gone. He had, he did not. He was not in Joe Turner's Come and Gone. At least I don't think so. He was nominated for Fences. And I had combined the two August Wilson plays together in my mind because I remember him in Fences being so fantastic and just thinking that he had won. He did not. He does not ha- have a Tony Award. So I am so sorry, Kyle. Kyle Marshall. Uh, if you would like Stephen McKinley Henderson to win this year for Between Riverside and Crazy, he absolutely can. Go for it, Steve. It's yours, baby, if you want it. Um, so I've, I need to say that now. The other thing, if we're going to get into 1994 before we get into the rest of the stuff, uh, the reason why Peter and I were sort of talking about that ceremony, in addition to the fact that I now know it was your first Tony's that made an impression on you, and it is a fun ceremony. I talked about this once before, but I'd like to expand on it. They opened that ceremony with uh, a medley performance up from every revival. Every revival got about 90 seconds to perform something. And it was tied together with uh, Victor Garber as Applegate singing a little bit of those were the good old days, connecting all the pieces. And, you know, when they finish, everyone sings heart together. Uh, all like all the cast from all the revivals come together and they all sing you gotta have heart and then they bring out George Abbott with Gwen Verdon and Maury and uh not Maureen Stapleton Gene Stapleton and uh they have George Abbott uh Stapleton and Verdon name the nominees and then Verdon announces the winner and it is very clear in the room so the nominees are Carousel She Loves Me Damn Yankees and Grease of the four She Loves Me had the most nominations 
Carousel was actually considered to have underperformed with nominations that night because Michael Hayden was not nominated, unfairly so. Sally Murphy was not nominated, unfairly so. Love D. Hody, but she was nominated for Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, and I think even she would tell you she was baffled in that when that nomination day happened. <clears throat> but uh, they are announcing the nominees, and we were talking about this. They go down the line. And you, the way that they are announcing the nominees and the way that the audience is responding, you can tell what are the shows everyone's rooting for in the room. She Loves Me is a huge crowd favorite. The way that Gene Stapleton goes, she loves me. And was it it's Verdon who does Damn Yankees or Stapleton that says Damn Yankees? No, it's Stapleton. How does she say it, Peter? She goes, Damn Yankees. <laughs> Just living it up. And I think Stapleton, was Stapleton even in... Damn Yankees originally? I feel like she was. Yeah, she was. She was Gloria, I believe, originally. Good on Gloria, her. Gloria, the secretary, not the secretary, the journalist. Yeah. Is that her? Yeah. Good for her. I believe I so. remember she was uh, the original Mrs. Straycosh in, in Funny Girl. Fanny, when when, uh, when audiences pay good money in the theater, especially the male element, they want something to look at. Uh, and, and so not only do they finish the medley with heart they have victor garber tying everything together as applegate they have george abbott the original fucking director of damn yankees out there with one of your with the two original stars of damn yankees announcing the winner they were very sure it was either going to be damn yankees or she loves me and it ended up being carousel which was the right choice and the audience's response is polite but not enthusiastic and then carousel goes on to win Every single award it's nominated for. And the only time there's like ever something above mild applause is when Audra wins. But even her win, it's not like the whole room is cheering. It's like it's polite. When Heitner won for director, when McMillan won choreography, and when Bob Crowley won for set design, everyone's like, okay. And I'm like, oh boy, people are not thrilled that this show just completely swept, which is so funny to me because you look at that year and I'm like, oh no. The greatest revival of all time rightfully won every category it was it was nominated for. You should be on your feet thanking them for giving you the greatest revival of all time. But everyone was just like, ugh, should have been damn Yankees. And I'm like, whatever, whatever, Judy. This is where I have to admit that I didn't see that revival, even though I was a fairly active theater goer at that point. What were you doing seeing Dan Yankees? My mother and I have actually, I did see Dan Yankees twice. The second time was somebody's birthday party, French Woods. So we'll skip the story since I know you won't appreciate it. Um, But I do vividly, my mother and I have talked about this years later. Like, why the hell didn't we go see that carousel? We would have loved that carousel. We didn't see it. But I will, I want to say a word on behalf of the Revival's medley in 1994. Mm. I know it feels cruel that they only get 90 seconds each. But I think you can say about that category in 1994 something you can't say about most other categories of revivals they all come off well even Greece comes off really well mm-hmm. and maybe having the extra three minutes or whatever actually isn't helping everybody for whatever reason I have found myself re-watching that medley a bunch but we also left out oh my god the fact that the medley itself is hosted by Victor Garber like, well, I was, like I was saying that he yeah. leads it oh you said it I'm so sorry because he ties um, it together as Applegate yeah there's like this whole thing. And George Abbott is so old that he's, I mean, they they come out like on a flat mm-hmm. on the set piece because he can't walk out there. They really set up the moment. So I, I, yeah. I remember being shocked just because if you're like reading the room at all, it seems rather strange. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful, I mean, the medley is wonderful. And you're right, they all come off well. And what I, it's not even just like the shortness, it's 
it's a very they're all very well curated performances because they fully represent what those revivals were right you know like Grease they just come out with the hula hoops doing we go together just like full on it's just bright it's energy it's Grease they're like we're not going to do anything else besides this she loves me they do a little bit of I don't know his name into the title song and it's so delightful and it's intimate damn Yankees they do shoeless Joe with you know amazing choreo and again it's like old school a lot of energy and then carousel they start with dialogue with sally and michael just breaking your damn heart and then going into shirley verrett singing and then the entire ensemble singing and it's just like very moving i'm like yeah that's what each of those revivals were they perfectly represented themselves which is just so rare that um i feel like so many times it's about trying to sell tickets and appeal to like middle America. And I'm like, no, no, no. Curate your performance to what your show is. That's why I love the fun home performance. Like we could do come to the fun home or we could just have Sydney Lucas doing the song and it works so well. Much more effective. I mean, I I actually think that all four of the shows are sold well in the revival in 94. Like I it I would, would buy a ticket to all four of them, although I didn't. So no. strike that. that. That was a that was a very good lineup. And the the truth is, of the four of them, Greece was objectively the biggest hit because it ran the longest. Uh, Carousel was at a nonprofit, so it you know eventually had to close. But Carousel was also a very big hit. It was it was a tough ticket for a while, and then because Lincoln Center Theater was still relatively young when they produced it, and that was such a huge financial undertaking. The moment it looked like they might have a couple of money losing weeks in January, they're like, we'd rather close it than like survive january and february and come back making money again and so like that show probably could have run twice as long or even three times as long if it was in a commercial house but them's the breaks them's the breaks but it is it's so interesting to watch that ceremony because that was also and i've talked about this before i miss the tony ceremonies that are in a broadway theater and this one's in the gershwin because it's mostly just the community the industry and the community Mm -hmm. it's not a lot of outside fans buying tickets to come in so you get a sense in those ceremonies of who is you know really has the support based off of you know who where the screams are coming from especially you can always tell from the mezzanine what you know who's got the support when tyne daly wins for gypsy the gays in the mezzanine go absolutely insane when dorothy loudon wins for annie the gays in the mezzanine go insane for her and it's like you they are so beloved in that moment it is such a triumphant win for those ladies and i love that and i miss that 94 is also the year i like maybe it's i'm sure i didn't do this in the moment but because i've seen the ceremony so many times i'm always there's a piece of music that mm-hmm. is played when Jane Adams wins her Tony for feature actress in a play. It's like do 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 do, and they use it many other years in the Tonys. And I have no idea what this piece of music is. But anytime it comes up, I'm like, oh, that's the Inspector Calls music. But it's not actually. It's just what the Tony Awards deemed yeah. they would play that night. That is so fascinating. I should look look at that again. I remember Jane Adams winning. Uh, Inspector Call was Inspector Calls was the other. Uh, major award winner that night and then that was also the year of perestroika right angels in america yeah part two yeah um so i mean that's just a they did a lot of good winners that night because not only does does my beloved carousel suite passion wins musical donna wins actress uh you know beauty and the beast wins for their costumes fine and inspector calls wins lighting design and featured actress they win revival and director of a play uh angels in america wins play actor and featured actor uh jared Emic, Emic, is that how you say his name? Wins. I think Emic. Emic. He Although I for... think um, Nell Carter called him Emmett, Jared Emmett, but I think it's, it's Emic. That sounds about right. I love it when Nell Carter presents the Tonys. It's always a laugh. Uh, she seemed very excited when he won. 
Yeah, she's always she's 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 always excited for whoever the winner is. And then Boyd Gaines winning for actor like it. There was a lot of good competition that year, and I feel like a lot of the rightful people won. It was like I I look at it and I don't really have a lot of notes on the winners that year. Speaking of no, but I will say I can't let ninety four go by without saying like they may have gotten some things right, but the Tonys really got one big thing wrong. The way they presented the design awards, they that was the year that they just pointed to the winners Mm -hmm. in the audience and they stood up. And I'm not sure they had made a speech in advance. I think they maybe had. But on the telecast itself, all you saw was, you know, Anne Hould Ward standing up, getting a gracious round of applause and then sitting right back down at her seat. But what they do, which I wish they would still do, is they do a uh, video segment where they get to talk about their work on their shows and you get to see the designs. That's true. I love that. That is true. There's the guy who, um, oh my God, the one who did the set for the Medea that had transferred from the Almeida and he was like, some designers want their sets, or most designers want their sets to stand up. I want mine to fall down. Mm hmm. Because the final reveal, that was the Diana Rigg Medea, where the reveal that she killed the children is it's like the whole set was um, stones and it just fell apart to reveal her like covered in the kids blood. And, and that's just a great image. I mean, that was also a good year of design. And uh, it was between Carousel and an inspector calls because it was. Uh, yeah, they still did. They still combined plays and musicals up until I think 2003. That was the year they split it. Right. You mean design wise? Yeah. I yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it used to, the design category used to be combined through all of the Tony Awards until 2003. Post, yeah, they actually were definitely of, combined in 2002. I don't yes, know about let's, that. so let's actually go to that winner for you right now. The 2002 yeah. winner, yeah, Tim Hatley, Private Lives, Scenic Design. Um, partly because I think it's fun when a play wins this category. Not the plays don't. I know you've got a play on your list that's a winner in the combined play and musical category. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember um, this. Is a, this is a category with really stiff competition. There was this set for Metamorphoses, the Mary Zimmerman play that mm-hmm. had been designed by Daniel Ostling. There was the revival of Into the Woods designed by Doug, Douglas W. Schmidt. And there was John Lee Beatty, who I I think he had won many years earlier, um, but he was nominated that year for Mornings at Seven, which was a revival I really, really loved um, at the time. And his design was really beautiful. But Tim Hatley had that forced perspective he had mm-hmm. the like the little bit of automation when when the show began the you know front of the set just like crept towards the lip of the stage and like really forced the perspective on the view of two hotel rooms outside and you know and he also had the benefit of designing you know one of the like a parisian apartment that anybody would kill to live in mm-hmm. um, and it was just a lush evocative set um in a production that the tony's voters clearly loved yeah, I so that was actually the year that I learned about Private Lives. So I was, and I'm going to show my age here, I was a supple 12 years old. And all I knew, all that season, the only shows I had seen uh, were, I had seen Thoroughly Modern Millie, I had seen Mamma Mia, I had seen Into the Woods in Oklahoma, and I had seen Metamorphosis. Maybe one more play, but I can't remember what. First of all, Metamorphosis still is stuck in my brain. I... That was one of the last times I saw a Broadway show, and I thought to myself, "This is fucking sexy." Like, th- like there was that show was sex, um, in the way that I feel like the Lacusa Wild Party was just like sex. It was you know hot, but also made you uncomfortable because it just was so I, raw. I can confirm that was yeah. like deeply evocative to me. You know, oh yeah, and exciting was, to me at seventeen or whatever. Yeah, just like beautiful, sexy people who are also phenomenal actors just moving and uh emoting in ways also while being soaking wet in that pool it was it was a lot and it was gorgeous i loved that production so much but i went into that night basically just being you know pro millie and pro woods 
Uh, and I remember being so staunchly pro Woods. This was uh, one of the earlier years that I was into the Tonys. For someone who watched their first Tony Awards in 99, it took about till 2001 for me to go, I have my predictions because yeah, at 11, you just know the world, you know? But I remember when Private Lives won set design. I was like, what is this play that beat a musical? There were books on stage and into the woods. And then I saw the clips and I was like, oh, that looks fun. And that and I look back on that moment where that was like, I didn't realize at the time, but that planted the seed in my head of how I view rightful winners, where it's not just about what's the most. It's about what grabs you. You can do so much with so little sometimes. And I have a design winner that does do a lot uh, as a play, but it's it's not as much as one of its competition nominees that year but we'll get to her in a second um but you say you were obsessed with the into the woods that season had you also previously seen the filmed into the woods that had been oh, on pbs oh i knew it by heart absolutely at 12 i was still very much in the mind frame of just loving everything that i was seeing and mm-hmm. which that started to change at after 2004 the joke i make on this podcast all the time and we have two of these winners here is i saw carolina change with my grandmother in may of 2004 and then I saw Light in the Piazza in, I think, April of 2005 with the same grandmother. And in those 12 months, a full monster was born because I became a hoity-toity, esoteric asshole. And I just I started liking the more highbrow stuff. I started voting, uh, rooting for the shows that weren't going to win and just always talking about, oh, the mainstream choice. Even when it was, you know, the year of Spring Awakening, the Great Gardens, neither of those are a mainstream choice. But I was like, oh. Great Gardens for the win, Spring Awakenings for the masses, and it's, that's that was me just being a dickhole of a seventeen-year-old. But uh, yeah, that's that's what happened was Carolina Change and Piazza, and before that, I was just loving everything I saw, absolutely everything. Yeah, I Which mean, is for not- me, it was similar kind of a thing. It was probably when I was like sixteen, seventeen, and it was ninety-nine, two thousand, two thousand one. So it was mm-hmm. you know Parade, Wild Party, Marie Christine, mm-hmm. um, Carolina Change. I mean, all, that whole stretch there for me was really. Yeah. Um, very formative. Did you see the Lacusa Wild Party on Broadway? Twice. Oh, lucky bitch. I yeah, I loved it. I what's not to love? It's all first of all all that talent. But my friend is now in the uh, cast of Funny Girl, and I saw her this past weekend, and we went backstage, and you know everyone's talking, taking photos, and I I participate in all that too, but. On two separate occasions, Peter, I shit you not, I whip out my phone and I start to play Queenie was a blonde, very low so no one can hear what I'm doing. And I'm just starting to like walk down the stage like Mark Kudish. And then I start to do the choreography that Tony Collette and the showgirls do and the Reba, Dante, Appalachie. And then I took a photo of the wings and I put it on my close friends and I said, it was here in these wings in 2000 that Tony Collette said, never again, never again shall I do a Broadway musical. <laughs> oh god how heartbreaking because she really was so good she, oh okay we're so off topic but i don't care this is welcome to the pod talk about a lineup that is just perfect oh, yeah. and killer best actress in a musical of the 2000 tonys heather headley and aida Marin Maisie and kiss me kate tony collette in the wild party rebecca luker in the music man and audra mcdonald and marie christine that is a murderer's row it's incredible that is a category I looked at and I did not choose as a feeling like it was one that the Tonys got right. And not because I don't think Heather Hadley was awesome, but because 
I was so obsessed with Marie Christine in that mm-hmm. moment in time mm-hmm. that I, I, I and I was so upset when Aida won the Tonys that it won at that time because I was so passionately wanting Michael John Lucusa with his four nominations to take home a Tony that night. Yeah. And when they announced Elton John for best score, I mean, it was like the the gay gasp that created all the rest of them. It was the the big bang of gay gasps. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I would have probably voted for Audrey McDonald, but all five of them. So great. Phenomenal. That's also, I mean, that's a year where you look at it and you go, oh, the nominators felt one way and the voters felt another way. I mean, 19- very clearly. Yeah. I mean, 1994 with my carousel, obviously like the nominators only gave it the five and the voters were like, right. And we give it all the five, but that 2000s Tony's, it's very clear that like the nominators liked wild party. I wish they liked it a little bit more to give George C. Wolf a rightful direction nomination. And um, there are a couple more performers in there. I would have liked to have seen get in, but also like, I can't totally begrudge them when Sherry Renee Scott didn't get in for Aida and Amy Spanger didn't get in for Kiss Me Kate. Like, it's tough. It's just tough to get in there sometimes. It's like the Harvard and Yale of the Tonys. It's like, sorry about it. You got waitlisted. But but what's amazing about that to me, though, is keep in mind the 2000 is the first year that the acting categories expand to five. Mm-hmm. So any prior season, one of the five like actors who you just named wouldn't have been in the category of Best Actress in the Musical. Yeah. And who would have and, been? And we could... I don't even want to consider it. I mean, it probably would have been Audra because her show was the cl- was closed a long time ago. I think I think it would have been either Audra or Rebecca. Uh, and she'd won three already. So I had. wonder if it would have been like, a, all right, sit this yeah. one out. Yeah. Well, that's sort of how a lot of people felt when she lost was, oh, Audra's reputation is tarnished and she's no longer like the queen of Broadway. And she was like, yeah, um, I had a great out? time. I went out, got drunk yeah. and realized I was pregnant two days later. And, you know, and Marie Christine is an album that I visit quite frequently. I was looking actually that year of uh, orchestrations because I was baffled that Wild Party didn't get an orchestration nomination. And that year it's it's Kiss Me Kate, Music Man, Swing and Marie Christine, I think. Yes. And um, don't come for Jonathan Tunick here because I like will defend that Tony. Oh, no, 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 no. I, w- I will absolutely p- keep the Marie Christine orchestration. What I was going to say was I would probably take out swinger music man and put in wild party there uh just because the orchestrations of that wild party are bonkers good and especially when you listen and if you listen to a bootleg of it from the theater because the cast recording is great you can hear all the intricacies but there's a stank on it when it was in the theater starting with the fact that um adam ellsbury gungle of the pods talks talked about it a lot like the drum kit for the cast recording is a little light it's it's a lot darker of a beat in the theater so you get that jazzy stank but that's that should have absolutely won score no doubt and i like marie christine a lot there are some songs in there that i think are gorgeous but wild party for me is just like i have no notes on that score i think it's a masterpiece from start to finish the one thing i will say though about the wild party you know mm-hmm. on stage on broadway versus the recording is the pace the tempos are a lot slower in in the theater just i think mm. there's more information that you need to be processing at a time and it's harder to do that and on the album they can just pump or maybe they needed to do so in order to fit it on one disc i have no idea yeah um no there's some, there's some slower stuff in the theater yeah although have you listened to the boot of the final performance no and i was at the second to last one <laughs> the final performance i have it uh i'll see if i can send it to you those tempos are on the faster side it's 
And it's one of those things like Patty's final performance in Evita where you don't know if it's just like the energy in the theater is so alive that everyone's kind of going a little faster or everyone was more comfortable with the music by that point. So because, you know, sometimes as shows continue and everyone's a little more comfortable playing, everything gets a little faster. Speaking of Funny Girl, that's sort of what happened on Saturday. But it's it's like it's either that or it's like Tony Collette went to the conductor that day and she's like, get me the hell out of here. She's she's like double time. (laughs) One left. I got one left double time everything but um yeah I mean even um welcome to my party it's it's it it goes quick but it's great like it's all that's the beauty of that score is that a little slower a little faster it's just so alive but that was the time the Tonys didn't get it right they got the lineup of best actress perfect but that is that is something else what I will say something that year they got totally right was costume design which was Martin Pacladina's for Kiss Me Kate a revival I did see it is burned in my brain that production and I think about it all the time it was one of those, if not perfect, near perfect productions. Everyone was just right for what they were doing. The tone was correct. The design was gorgeous. The sound was good. Um, I don't even begrudge them. Their orchestrations win because those orchestrations are really strong. I'll always remember watching Marin Maisie simulate childbirth on a picnic table during I Hate Men. It was a sight. I adore it. It was, it was glorious. Um, so that show winning... Uh, costumes it's like seems like such a minor thing to talk about but like they were always going to win revival they were always going to win director brian was always going to win so like those wins are great but they're not they're not the sort of like good choice tonys it's more sort of like yes tonys you saw stop you saw the sign that said stop and you stopped you followed exactly the directions you needed to costumes it's like they could have gone to i think it was music man aida and maybe swing uh, maybe there was. Oh uh, no, one. it's the Green Bird. I just oh, the Green Bird. Oh, Miss Julie Taylor. No, I do not remember that. I don't have that from memory. But, but um, I, I is that the only Tony that Aida lost that night, though? I think so. For Bob Crowley has yet to win a costume Tony Award. He is the Casey Nicola v. Choreography Tony for costume designers because he's won set a bunch, but he's never won for costumes. Um, and I yeah, I think that is their only Tony lost that night because they won score no. Were they nominated for book? They weren't nominated for no. book. Yeah, they won. They won actress. They won score. They won scenic design. They won lighting design. Yeah, they weren't nominated for anything else other than costumes. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I always think about Aida when you, you were saying before. You know, mm-hmm. it was clear that the voters and the nominees, the nominators, had different agendas that year. Like Aida was the best example. It did not get nominated in a lot of categories, but the category, the, the nom, the categories it was nominated in, it generally did well. Yeah, I there. So I talked about this last week with Big, where there are cases where people feel like there is a bit of a conspiracy against some shows when nominators go in and nominate. And it's less so now because the nominating body is actually a lot larger and they don't vote by preferential ballot anymore like they used to. They actually got rid of that after the big year because um, after some investigating, they realized that there were people who put Swinging on a Star and... Uh, I think it was Chronicle of a Death Foretold, like at their number one and number two to keep Big and State Fair off the top four best musical yeah. list. But that year, I don't know if it was necessarily like everyone got together to like make a decision, but it was very clear that the nominators knew if they nominated Aida for musical, it would win. And they didn't want that to happen. They really tried to give voters a choice among four very different shows. And, you know, there's Swing, there's Wild Party, there's Contact, and there's The Dead. 
and I would have voted for Wild Party, but I actually don't begrudge them contact, which is not technically a musical, but was a very special theatrical experience and very well done. So I I get it. And I am not mad about that win, even though I know we all look back and we like to joke, oh, yeah, the non-musical one musical. I'm like, yes, but it was also a fabulous night of theater. Yeah, I, I was... I, at the time, really begrudged Contact its victory, but I hadn't seen the show. And, you know, a couple months later, when I eventually made it to see the show, I went in, you know, with my arms crossed and I walked out with my heart full. Yeah. It was it, it was a wonderful evening. I saw it a little later in the run. I saw it when Charlotte Demoise had replaced Karen Ziemba, but it was it was a good time had by 12 year old me or maybe 11 year old me. I can't remember. Well, now that you've mentioned Karen Ziemba. I mean, we we sort of briefly went over the category of featured actress in the musical. Um, I, this is not even one that I'm picking because I think Karen Ziemba was terrific. But just to look at how stacked this category is also that it was Karen Ziemba, Eartha Kitt, Deborah Yates in Contact with the Girl mm-hmm. in the Yellow Dress. Um, and then Laura Benanti in her first Tony nomination and Anne Hampton Calloway both for Swing. But like we said, there's so many people who could have been in there who weren't. Sherry Renee Scott, uh, Amy Spanger for Kiss Me Kate. But I also would have thrown Mary Testa in there for Marie Christine, which maybe mm-hmm. not. I don't think that she stood a chance in 2000, but she did, you know, get her back to her. She bookended it in 99 and 2001. Um, but even Ruth Williamson in The Music Man, I remember there was chatter about her being mm-hmm. a potential nominee there. It's a stacked category. Um, and I do think actually that the, the Tonys did right. Karen Ziembo was really, really stunning in that role. Yeah. There's, uh, have you read the book, Nothing Like a Dame? Of course. I've t- I don't like to assume with anyone, but <laughs> there are a lot of books I haven't read, but that one I've read. <laughs> I've read four books in my life. One of them is Nothing Like a Dame. Karen Ziemba talks about winning, and then I think she did some production or reading with Eartha like two years later. And they go, Oh yeah, Eartha, this is Karen Ziemba. You know, she wanted she's a Tony winner, she won for contact. And it all connects with Eartha. Like all of a sudden she realizes who Karen is and what she won for in the year that she won, and she just looks at her ever so eartha like and she goes oh it's you <laughs> and it's that's such, that's such a great eartha moment i love that and karen that's from all accounts was at first having only seen charlotte in that role i think that role is heartbreaking and i can only imagine that karen did wonderfully by yeah. it so it is that contact was most likely going to win musical and karen had been around for a while and finally was like getting her due after sort of like the heartbreak of steel pier you know steel pier was supposed to be her tony and then that show didn't do what they thought it would which i totally hear but i also think i mean eartha kate has eartha kate won a tony i don't think she has she I never did, she did. No. um so i understand you know if that story is true that like why she would even in a not funny way yeah feel like oh that was my chance that was my little lifetime achievement moment and it didn't come to be and she yeah. was great in the show when i the first time i saw it uh, I remember that the two gentlemen sitting next to us had come in from Texas just to see Eartha Kitt on stage one more time. Mm-hmm. And they had so- told that to the usher as they were seated. And the usher said, she's great. The show isn't. Can you imagine? What Before a- you sit down to see the show. What a bitch thing to say. And also just incorrect. That show is Agreed. great. It's so great. Um, I've often thought to myself, if we were to do like a star-studded concert of that wild party who would play Dolores and I can't think of anyone just because Eartha's impression on it is so extreme but that's beside the point um let's do one more category and then we got to take a break so I mentioned my costumes with Kiss Me Kate in in 2000 uh let's do another one for you Peter all right let me throw in um 
Here's one where I think that came down to two actors from the same show, or that was sort of the conventional wisdom at the time. 2016 actor in a musical, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. won for Hamilton. And I know there was a lot of talk going into the night about, you know, was Lin-Manuel Miranda going to win for Hamilton? Uh, and I feel here that the Tonys really got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also talk of Danny winning for Fiddler that year. Yeah, that to me seemed less likely. Um, for whatever reason, it didn't feel like the, the revival from an awards perspective, had a lot of momentum behind it. It didn't. But again, Danny was very well loved. Tevya is just like, you know, it's that kind of a role. And he had won the Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle because Hamilton had won everything the year prior. So right. um, when when you know, Danny wins all these precursors leading into the Tonys, there is some momentum behind him. Sure. I, I did not believe myself like you that he was going to but there was talk of it in the same way that i think there was also talk of of lynn i very much loved leslie in in hamilton i thought he was fantastic there this was a case for me where um the last two performances i saw in this category were uh zachary levi and alex brightman and i think alex might have been the last performance I saw going into the Tony. So I was actually very hopped up on his performance in School of Rock, which I fully expected to hate and walked out not hating. Didn't love, but didn't hate. And I pretty much uh, put all of the thanks for that on him. And so I was sort of like, that's the kind of performance that I would totally reward that who is so good that I don't hate a show that I probably would have. Yeah, and it was sort of career-making for him. There was a lot of hot energy behind Alex. Yeah. It's just somebody who people could feel they had discovered. Yeah, but I agree with you about Leslie, especially because Hamilton swept that night in a way that I still question myself which categories I might have handed over to um, another George C. Wolf musical that year that I loved very much. But here, here. Yeah, here, here. Uh, but Leslie, I don't actually begrudge his win for that because I recall seeing him at the public and then seeing him on Broadway and just remembering like the magnetism that he had and the odd choices he was making that all worked. Um, Because I, I find so many times with performers and musicals and I won't name names and I won't say shows, but sometimes I find performances that are perfectly fine, but very safe. And I really miss when aliens make weird choices that stick the landing it's why i love jennifer samard so much because that girl makes the oddest of choices but they always land for me and leslie made some odd choices in hamilton that all worked and i love rewarding shit like that and i think that it was supported by the writing i think burr is extremely well written as a character and and like obviously the show is hamilton's but for me watching it i'm always more interested in burr he's salieri he's Chavert. he's like all of those things that are really you know those that he's the underdog actually in the story. Um, and I think he gets some of the best material in the entire show. And he was so good in it that for mm-hmm. me predicting this, my heart, I was like, it's gotta be Leslie Odom Jr. Right. I mean, I personally actually would give Hamilton all of its acting awards. I think to V Diggs and Renee Lee Sculpsbury were all terrific in there. And I probably would have voted for them had I had that, you know, a ballot in front of me. Um, but looking back on it, this is the one where I was like, I remember reading the day before people telling me that Lynn Manuel was going to win and thinking, I, I hope it's Leslie Odom Jr. because he was really great. Yes, he was. And it was the correct choice. I will make my next pick in just a second. But first, we got to take a break. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. 
and we're back. What a wonderful break that was. Peter, what did you do? I took a nap. I feel refreshed and I'm ready to go. Fantastic. I have myself a second Clementine and I look forward to eating it now that I have it. So this one, uh, you might have to correct me on the pronunciation and it doesn't seem like an odd choice now. Some of these we look back and we go, oh, of course, but I do want to kind of put people in the mind frame of this year. This is best book of a musical, Rachel Schenken for Spelling Bee. And is that right? It's Schenken, right? I think so. That's that's yeah. what I would have said. Yeah. Uh, she won over the librettos for Spamalot, Light in the Piazza, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I mean, this is a very good lineup of best musicals in general. They're all very different from each other. I don't think any of them are particularly bad. Uh, the and it, rap- this category matches the best musical category exactly, too. It does. And, and score as well. And the thing is that Spamalot gets a bad rep for a lot of people because we look at the other three and go, oh, you know, why would Spamalot win? And I do think Spamalot is the least good of the four, but that's not because Spamalot is actually bad. It's just because these other three are just very strong in very different ways. But what I want listeners to understand in 2005 was going into the ceremony that night, there was a belief from a lot of people that Spamalot was going to pull a producers and just win everything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone knew Mike Nichols was going to win. Uh, there was Sarah Ramirez winning was considered uh not a sure thing, but she was considered a front runner, and I'll get to her when later. Uh, there was talk of them winning score and book and some design elements, unless you know Chitty Chitty Bang Bang won set and it didn't, and I have a design one for that as well. Uh, Spamalon was going in expecting to win at least six or seven Tonys, and so it only won three: director, featured actress, and musical. And Spelling Bee won for its book, and I think that this show is a just so well constructed, but also. I don't know how they do it now, but on Broadway, there was an improvisational element to it. You know, we had people from the audience coming on stage to be other spellers. And the way that they could incorporate that night after night with all these variations was was just so impressive. And the show was funny as hell, charming as hell. And I, I mean, I just think this book is one of the strongest of this century and should be studied by a lot of people. There are, there are like a handful of librettos of the 21st century. I'm like, no, look at these. These are very good and like pretty concrete. And this is one of them. So I want to applaud the Tonys for picking the right winner for best book that year. Um, And what I would say to that myself is I think that Rachel Schenken's book is awesome. And if you put a ballot in front of me, it would be a really hard choice. And I think probably in 2005, I would have voted for Rachel Schenken, but mm-hmm. I am a book writer myself. And what I find myself pulling off the shelf to look at from time to time is Craig Lucas's book for Light in the Piazza. Mm. There's some scene work there that is pretty astounding to me. And when I think about Light in the Piazza, which is a show that is so driven by its music, I often think of a book moment, um, you know, late in the show when, when um, Margaret says to her husband over the phone that, you know, they share something, a wealth or a depth of a, something like that, a wealth of feeling that we never did. And it's just a line, but it is so gutting and it so shifts the entire emotional trajectory of the piece um, that I think in retrospect, I would have, the re- what kept this off of my list was my love for Craig Lucas's book of Piazza. I mean, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. I think Lucas's book for Piazza is lovely. And Piazza is a show that also has stuck with me. And I, I, I come back to myself and just see the beauty and the detail in it. At the time, there wasn't as much momentum for his libretto, I remember. I mean, Piazza, no, certainly not. Yeah, Piazza was a, was a show that came out of those Tonys 
having done so much better than they ever expected to do. They're, they're, they knew they had Vicky winning. That was pretty much a lock. Everything else was sort of hopeful. They were like, we could win score. We would like to win score. We might win orchestrations. We could win a design element or two. Because they had won some precursors, but again, those don't ever really mean anything. And so for Piazza to win score, orchestrations, actress, and then sweep the design categories was beautiful and unexpected and i was i'm so glad they did it which actually leads me to scenic design michael jurgen for lighting the piazza uh lose uh beating out chitty chitty bang bang spam a lot and pacific overtures chitty chitty bang bang despite having not won the drama desk was still considered the front runner that year simply because of it being the most of it being such a spectacle the car is flying you know the huge sets at the now lyric then hilton and people said, oh, if it's not Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, it'll be Spamalot because Spamalots will sweep otherwise. So for Michael Jurgen to win, I remember the message boards at the time because I was 15. I was still on the message boards. A lot of people who hadn't seen Piazza were like, I'm kind of baffled here, guys. Like, how could these two huge design shows lose? And the few of us who were pro Piazza were like, if you saw the show, you'd get it. Like, it's just it's one of those sets that's not like massive it is epic because it was a it's a big design it's the Beaumont if you're filling out the Beaumont stage you have to do it with something but it was like poetry on stage that it looked and felt like Italy as someone who's never been but to me it looked and felt like Italy and the way that um Jurgen and Bart Scher were able to make all the different uh buildings sort of come together and create different locations the way they could make empty space feel full and full space feel empty it was just a beautiful design and i'm so glad that they picked it over uh more i don't say crowd pleasing that sounds uh egotistical and and esoteric but fuck it that's who i am uh over the crowd pleasing designs like chitty chitty bang bang yes that car flew but so did clara's hat and we reward that fair uh, I also love the design of Lightning Piazza. I had seen, I was at school, I was in college these, during this period, and I was at Northwestern, so I was near Chicago and had seen me out of town at the Goodman. Mm. So I also was aware of how the design had developed to a certain extent. And because I had liked the show so much when I saw it at the Goodman, I had scoured the internet and seen photos and maybe even seen videos of the Intamon production that had preceded the Goodman, where the design was even a little bit darker. And obviously these are you know, adapted to the theaters that they're in and the Beaumont is a very different space than mm-hmm. uh, those other spaces. But um, I, I agree with you. I think that Tony's got it right here that Michael Jurgen's design is pretty terrific. But I do want to push back, actually, that my feeling, you know, contemporaneously was not that Vicki Clark was a lock. I actually remember feeling like, I really hope that she, like, that this happens for her, that it was clear she deserved it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that Christina Applegate had a real narrative behind her. You know, she had broken her ankle or whatever she had done to herself in the out-of-town tryout in Chicago. She mm-hmm. had, they had been talking about canceling the show and she rallied and, you know, kept all those people in their jobs. And there was a lot of emotional support for her, but I don't think it was enough to overcome the fact that Victoria Clark was sort of more universally um, admired yeah. in the performance. I think that's sort of where we get to the discussion of what people are saying and what people are feeling. I talked mm-hmm. about this uh, a few times now, and I the the most recent example I can think of really is back at the Oscars of uh, twenty twenty one when you know it, that was the year of Nomadland, Mank, Minari, and I I bring this example up all the time where Chadwick Boseman was considered such a lock because he had won all the precursors. I was like, oh, it's him, it's him, it's him. And then I was reading all these articles about they uh, were interviewing Oscar voters, and they're like, well, Boseman's going to win 
But if I'm honest, Anthony Hopkins gave the performance I liked more. So I voted for Anthony just because, you know, I liked it more. And but it's fine. Bozeman's going to win. And I read enough of those articles that I thought to myself, huh, I wonder if enough Oscar voters felt this way. And it turned out to be the case. And so with Vicky and Christina, you're absolutely right. Like the narrative of Christina was really good. You know, big Hollywood star comes in. Uh, does okay out of town, then breaks her ankle. Oh, the show's going to get canceled. No, she rallies. She's coming back. She's doing it. And there was that, you know, goodwill around her. But the overall response to her performance was underwhelmed. Like, everyone was like, we like her. We don't think she's doing a great job. And Vicky was someone who everyone did like, who everyone thought was doing a great job. And it was like, she's here. She's been amazing for know 20 years and now she's having the moment and she's in a show we like here we go so i at totally. the time it felt to me at the time it felt to me like she was locked maybe this is where you know i like having other perspectives because my line the journey of my life that year and maybe again it's because i was so piazza focused but i was like yeah it's it's her um because it was it was her christina Sutton for Little Women, which had closed. Sherry for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And much, much as I love Sherry and good as she was, that show was about Norbert. He was the narrative of that. And she didn't enter until like 40 minutes into the show or something like that. I mean, it really was. I remember thinking, oh, they could have pushed her featured if they really wanted to. They could have. But I also stand a queen who gets who dares to be leading and not enter for 40 minutes. I think that is iconery right there. That She was fantastic in that show and also had built up similarly some goodwill towards her and she'd been around a while and hadn't scored yet and it was time. yeah it was it was it was it's it's a good lineup oh and then we have Aaron dilly for chitty chitty bang bang who is another person like has been around for a few years goodwill she you know the millie thing happened which could have been her moment but it didn't happen so she gets it for chitty it's for me it felt like it was victoria it was like christina was a good option in theory and then it was once you sat down at those two shows you're like you cannot deny that Vicky is in total control of this. And Christina, unfortunately, some of this eludes her. But yeah, I don't know. This is what makes horse races, Peter. But you also are describing a thing um, or have described a thing that I love, which is I love when the predictions and articles will do a will win and should win. Because mm-hmm. when you see the should wins lineup, then you're, you know, the hair in the back of your neck goes, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah. Like if everybody thinks the same person should win, that's probably going to be the person who actually takes this. Yeah. That's how I felt when um Once on this Island won Revival, because everyone thought yeah, it was precisely my, everyone thought it was gonna be my fair lady and i was like but i really liked one son of silent i was like okay then i think that could happen uh, we love to see it okay let's do another one of yours my dear great i'm gonna go way back in time and i'm gonna say 1962 when richard rogers won best composer for no strings and um, and he beat uh, the score from Quamina or Quamina? Quamina. I actually don't know how to pronounce it Quamina, thank you um he beat jerry herman's score for milk and honey and I think the show that most people thought would win, I imagine, or most people think in retrospect should win, Frank Lester's score for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Um, but I really stand by this one. I think that Tony's got it right. The score for No Strings is one of my favorite like old scores to throw on and just enjoy. It's jazzy. It's a departure for Richard Rodgers. It's his first foray into writing a musical after Hammerstein had passed away. Um, and he does, you know, the metaphor of No Strings is obviously emotional in the story, but in the pit, it's also literal. Um, and I, I just think he comes up with some music that, that sounds unlike Richard Rogers. It's really jazzy. Apologies that my cats are fighting in the background. Um, but Bats. it's really jazzy and really fun. I know. And neither named Grisabella. Um, and I love the score. It's just, it's awesome. So full, full support, 
I think the Tony's got it right, 1962, best composer. I think what the Tony's got wrong is the fact that there's no lyricist. I mean, Richard Rodgers, to be fair, is the lyricist of No Strings, but the mm -hmm. category is for composer. That's one of the yeah. years where they had a category for like book, which they called author, and they had a category for composer, but lyricists were just completely unnominated and unpraised. Yeah, they would eventually go on to have a split best best score, best lyrics, which I don't know if ever... Actually, that might have just been the year of company that they did that one time. Yeah, yeah. If they had split split it that year in '62, I think Lesser probably would have won lyrics, but we'll never actually know. That way lies madness to keep going down that road. You no, know, I have no notes on that. You want, the only reason why I know it's pronounced Quamina is because of title of show. Bless you. Yes, the they're the song in original musical, and they're singing about it's an original musical original, and Jeff goes like Quamina. And so I learned about Kwamina because of Jeff, uh, Jeff Bowen. That's his name. Yeah, it's it. I'll always remember Kwamina because of that. Like Kwamina or Starlight Express. Anywho, oh, I do love that show. OK, let me do one of mine now. Speaking of cats, actually. Best another best scenic design. This was back when they were still combined. In 1983, when Ming Cho Lee won for best scenic design for K2 over <clears throat> John Gunter, Gunter for All's Well That Ends Well, David Mitchell for Foxfire, and most famously, John Napier for Cats. The design for the original Broadway production of Cats, I, I remember it to this day because I was, again, a very, very sexy 10-year-old when I saw it. And I'd only seen the VHS with Elaine Page. I was like, yeah, that 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 looks cute. And then I go into the Winter Garden Theater where it is just all around me. The design is all around me. Very intricate. The claw, the silver claw coming out from the damn ceiling over my head to take Liz Calloway off of the tire up into the claw. It just it blew my mind. That said, Ming Choli set for K2 it's the Himalayan mountains and it's just, it's this really incredibly realistic detailed, but also hyper theatrical design. That's just a very, very striking image. And I love that the Tonys that year went for that over a very impressive grand design, similar to, you know, what I was talking about with Piazza and Chitty and all that stuff. But I, I having not actually been there in person to see K2, but have just like marveled over the, over the photos of that set, many times i look at him like you know what good on you guys and also like rewarding ming cho lee who is one of the most beloved designers in all of theater history yeah i agree with you here i've only ever seen the photos of k2 but if you imagine it's like a play about mountain climbing that there's inherent danger in it but like how do you express that danger on stage and mm -hmm. that design really does evoke it's it's tall and scary yeah from the photos what... i've seen yeah there's uh like the very first sentence i think of the times review for it talks about how the curtain goes up and just goes all the way past the proscenium and there's like no uh masking around the set it just that set went all the way up into the flies so it really gave the impression of you are in deep in this mountain and it is it's just so fun i love it when shit like that happens uh one thing i want to say and then we can go to one of yours i want to talk for a quick second about the 2014 featured actor in a play category because we've talked about murderers row we've talked about when the tonys just get a category of nominations right and this is one where i looked at it and i went oh my goodness yes this is right and it and it's so funny because it has three actors from the same show so to have 60 percent of your category be from one show and i'm still like yeah great diversity here it's 
I just think it's a really great lineup. We have Mark Rylance in Twelfth Night, who's the eventual winner. Reed Bernie for Casa Valentina, uh, Casa Valentina. Paul Chahidi for Twelfth Night uh, as Mariah. Stephen Fry as Malvolio for Twelfth Night, and Brian J. Smith as the Gentleman Caller in Glass Menagerie. This is. I mean, I I still think so fondly of this Twelfth Night. This is still my favorite production of Shakespeare I've ever seen. And I also saw the Richard wow. III that they did in Rep, and I did not like it as much. But also, I don't like Richard III that much. But I remember Mark Rylance just really finding all of these nuances of comedy in in the show. I, I the I'll always remember when Stephen Fry's Malvolio comes out with his yellow stockings, and Mark Rylance says, "How now, Malvolio?" and then sees him and goes. Oh, and it was just one of those <laughs> stupid, stupid line deliveries that we all laughed at. The way Paul Chahidi said, he's coming, madam. It's just all, it all is in there. I love it. Reed Bernie was so hateful in Casa Valentina in the most glorious, yeah. bitchy of ways. And then Brian J. Smith was just so endearing in Glass Menagerie. And my favorite scene of that production was him and Celia Keenan-Bolger. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think they all were really great. And I did see all of them. Um I agree with the eventual uh, the eventual winner here. I think Mark Rylance uh, probably deserved this. Yeah, uh, but it's also like why vote against like why bet against Mark Rylance? It's, yeah, it's not going to happen for you if you if you bet against Mark Rylance, you're going to lose. Exactly. More often than not, the man wins. So you might as well just put your speech in your back pocket and sit on it. All uh, right. And I remember thinking that year that also um, Nick Westrate in. Casa Valentina was also really terrific, but didn't get the same, um, didn't, there wasn't in, as much in the play for his character as there was for Reed Bernays. Exactly. I remember watching him and thinking that he was very compelling and that there was a lot I looked forward to seeing from him. But also, it was that and the fact I was kind of thirsting after him. So the two go hand in hand. <laughs> the two go hand in hand. Fair. All right. Uh, let's go with one of yours, sir. Um, I'm going to go with uh, 1996 Best Actress in a Play. Uh, I, this was not a surprise when Zoe Caldwell won for Masterclass, um, but this category is absolutely stacked, and I saw 75% of it. Uh, the rest of the nominees were Rosemary Harris and Elaine Stritch for A Delicate Balance and Carol Burnett in Moon Over Buffalo. Um, and I saw Delicate Balance and Masterclass. All three of these women were like pretty astounding to my you know 12-year-old, 13-year-old brain. Um, but Zoe Caldwell... And I might actually have voted for, you know, again, like I was a voter, I was 13 years old. Uh, Elaine Stritch, had they put her in the featured category. But seeing her performance or even Rosemary Harris's terrific performance up against so-called Well, who just dominated that play, she was in control. You know, one of those performances that I opted out of seeing the Time Daily Revival because my memories of Zoe Caldwell's performance in 1996, I just don't want to fuck with them. Mm-hmm. No. And she that, was, and I remember I had read the play because I really wanted to understand it when I saw it. Um, and I was in the front row on tickets I had gotten from my bar mitzvah from my ophthalmologist. And she delivered certain lines to my mother, like by way of apologizing for, you know, there are lines where she curses and then she apologizes to the audience for cursing. But the night I was there, and I'm sure many other nights when there were children nearby, she looked at my mother and apologized to my mother for cursing in front of me. Like she was so alive in the text and so it was just like the the combination of actor and role um and i'm eternally grateful i got to see that i wish i could have seen her live i've only seen clips thanks to aurora spider woman i I will go to the library to watch it 
especially because I want to watch the full final scene with her and Audra because reading the play, it doesn't feel like it ends with a on a great note, not in terms of like happy or sad, but just, you know, you read it and you go, oh, that's how it ends. And I just know, I just know that Zoe called on Audra acted that scene in a way where it felt complete. And I want to watch that. Uh, I, I I mentioned it before. I don't think I actually ever said the story, though, and I regret it. It was in the Love, Valor, Compassion episode. I have a Zoe Caldwell story and Tyne Daly and Terrence McNally. I was invited to a benefit at the Players Club in Gramercy Park that was honoring Aaron's and Flaherty. And uh, I think Anastasia was about to come into Broadway that year. So Derek Klenna and Chrissy Altamar sang a little piece from... Uh, Anastasia, Derek Klenna, your boy. And love Derek. Yeah, Derek's great. And someone else said something and it's something, but uh, because it was Aaron's and Flaherty, Terrence McNally was there. And Zoe Caldwell was there with Terrence, as was Tyne Daly. And at some point in the night, I see the three of them on a chaise lounge just together and no one is bothering them. And that's great. We don't like to bother legends, but I was also sitting there, you know, I'm standing there 16 year uh, 16, 26 year old me in my little suit. And my, the person who brought me was off with his, you know, friend. So I was kind of on my own and I went, I am never going to get this moment again. So I went on over, moseyed on over and I crouched down and I said, I have to just go down the line here. So apologies uh, to do this like an assembly line. But I said, Miss Daly, I am such a huge fan of yours. You, I think you're magnificent. I've seen you on stage. I wish I could have seen your gypsy. I adore your recording. I think you're great. I am such a huge fan. To which she stops me and goes, you're not a huge fan of mine. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, I've, she's like, look at you. I have much bigger fans than you. And I went, ah, time daily. Calling me thin in the best of ways. And then I said to Mr. McNally, I think you're wonderful. I think Kiss of the Spider Woman is one of the best librettos of the last 30 years. And I love, love Battle of the Compassion. And I said, Ms. Caldwell, I've never seen you on stage, but I've only seen clips. And those clips are magnificent. I watched, and this was around the time I think Aurora Spider Woman was just starting. So the clip of her and Audra doing the Lady Macbeth bit, uh, the murder happy, that clip was on YouTube. And I was like, oh, this these clips are on YouTube of you and Audra and they're wonderful. And she just looks at me like as if I've just told her that the walls of Jericho have come tumbling down. And Terrence McNally goes, there's footage of that? I go, yeah. He goes, can you send it to me? I said, how do I send it to you? And he writes down his email address and gives it to me. He goes, you send me these links. So I still have cataloged somewhere in my emails an email from Terrence McNally thanking me for sending him press footage of Masterclass. So that's wow. my Zoe Caldwell story. I I live for another day. Um, also, like, Audra wasn't really considered the front runner that year for her category, was she? Um, I don't really know, because I, I know that the two women from Seven Guitars, Viola Davis, I think, and Michelle Shea. And then who was the fourth dominee? I don't know. This is a great question. I just remember... I know Audra has said she didn't expect to win, but Audra never expects to win, which is why we love her. I mean, in 98, I remember vividly that people were predicting Sidi Loka for The Lion King and that, yes. that everyone thought that Audra was not going to win that award. And that one, you know, seemed to come as a huge surprise. Yes. Um, uh, it, but it's, like, in, Lois Smith for Barry Child. Oh, sure. I can't imagine anyone really had much hope on that one. But still... I mean, I think I think Viola Davis was probably considered um, a front runner in that category, or it kind of felt like a free for all for everybody. But yeah, I know that Masterclass and Ragtime were not considered 
locks for her. Those are both sort of considered surprises. Yeah, I mean, I, when this happened, you know, in 1996, I don't think I had any idea who Viola Davis was. I didn't really discover her until King Henry II. And mm. then I was pretty blown away. Yeah, I first discovered Viola Davis in Knights of Rodanthe, where she plays uh, Diane Lane's <laughs> sassy best friend. But that is... That is not the point of this story. I remember King Hedley II on Broadway. I didn't see it. I was still a little but too But they young. did it on the Tonys. They, they did. performed from it. I miss when they would do things from plays on the Tonys. I've talked about this. I want them to go back to doing it. Yeah. I mean, the problem is they don't often do and do it right. I mean, look, specifically about the King Hedley II thing, I remember that monologue that Viola Davis did on the Tonys in the theater was mm-hmm. like, I, I didn't breathe during it. It was so compelling and fraught. And if there's like anything you would want in the from a performance... And then I remember watching it on the telecast and feeling like it hadn't really modulated for the camera yeah. all that well, which is amazing to think like Viola Davis is such a great screen actor at this point and has been for many years. But I think it's probably really hard, as I imagine it is for all of these shows when they perform at the Tonys, to be playing for, you know, 1,200 or, you know, 5,000 people in the house while also playing to a camera that's a few feet from your face. I imagine that is extremely difficult. Sure. Uh, maybe the the what the compromise could be is like a minute clip from the theater, like film it sometime the week before in front of a live audience in their theater and just show like a minute of the show. Uh, Maybe that'll be, I just, I just, I just would like, I would like plays to get a bit more representation, but we digress. In 89, when they do, they do clips from the plays again, the Heidi Chronicles. Mm -hmm. It's, I love that clip. It's Peter Friedman and Joan Allen doing, Mm -hmm. um, the Scoop's wedding scene. Yep. And it's a scene that reads really great on the page. But when you see these two performers who they, that they've been, you know, Daniel Sullivan has directed the shit out of them. And it is, it's the whole scene comes to life in a way that like, I, I would never have imagined. No. Um, and I think that's the same year as Prelude to a Kiss with Mary Louise Parker and Timothy Hutton. That's another really good one. Or is that 19? That might be. I think that's the next year. That might yeah. be the next year. But... So they were really trying around then. In 93, yeah. they did the whole thing where they were like, here are scenes from the plays in different stages of production. So like one of the scenes, I think Sisters Rosenzweig, they did yes! the actors sitting around the table, right? And then they did Angels in America. They did the like very end, I think, of Act One of Angels yep. um, of uh, Millennium Approaches with so as a sort of like a dress rehearsal kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember how they did Song of Jacob Zulu, uh, but and I don't remember what was the other nomination there. But regardless, they just they like were trying to figure out how to you present these plays effectively, mm-hmm. and it just hasn't always been successful. No, it hasn't always been successful, but it also hasn't always been successful for musicals. So I say let's just take a chance on plays again, everybody. Um, let me go into one of man. Uh, oh, this is one you and I disagree on. So I would love to have a disagreement for a second. 1982, best score. I said Maury Esten for nine, and you say Krieger and Ian for Dreamgirls. First of all, well, you know, I actually don't even know if it's Dreamgirls for me. It's the, the whole category is is great, right? There's Dreamgirls, there's nine, and there's also Sondheim for Merrily We Roll Along. Mm-hmm. I think nine is, and there's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Sorry that I which is which is delightful. Let us let us not shit on in its own way. Um. Nine is also a really great score. But if I were, if you're going to like shoot me in a rocket to the moon and tell me I could take 10 albums with me, I would have Dreamgirls and Merrily both on my long list. I'd probably settle and keep, Dreamgirls would probably be the one that made it into the 10 out of that. But I, it would be hard for me to not cast a vote for Dreamgirls or Merrily because I find them so much more exciting when I listen to the original cast albums. 
Oh no, there's a there's a yossification in Dreamgirls that I love very dearly. That said, when I it's when I start analyzing these scores that I kind of go, okay, which one is doing the heavy lifting more? And I think that the score of nine, I think I think nine and Merrily are actually very interesting siblings. They're kind of like kissing cousins because they are both fantastic scores that are upholding a book that is not fully there. But I do think that nine does a better job of it only because with nine, I can watch it and still feel like I'm watching a, a, a put together show. Whereas merely I've always felt like I am watching a great score just constantly be failed once the song ends and the book begins. Uh, I know they've made revisions. I've seen revised versions. It has gotten better, but it has never fully worked for me. And not only that, and maybe this is because I'm you no know, a complex asshole, but even though they've made the show make more sense and have streamlined it a bit, I still prefer the original version of the score. I prefer Rich and Happy to that Frank. Uh, I don't necessarily need the blob. And I mean, that overture is incredible. I just, there's so much about it. I love the Broadway brassiness of the original version. Um, I heartily agree with you actually about the score and its different versions. The one thing I would miss if we only ever had the original is the um, opening of Act Two, Gussie's song. The oh, sure. only a boy. Maybe the moon is cheese stuff. Okay, um, so the moon I, is cheese. I know that they're okay, so it is cheese, but some people dislike that section. I, for whatever reason, have always found it thrilling. Maybe it's Michelle Pock's fault, but I really enjoy it. Yeah, no, I, Michelle Pock and Elizabeth Stanley. No, I love that. I, I'm always down to give Gussie more to do. And I say that having just said Nick's the blob, but I just don't, I just don't find the blob very interesting of a song and also a little too self aware for Gussie to be singing. But we digress. That I think it's also just there's some I find the score of nine to be just so unique and special and precious that yes, like gun to my head, I probably would pick Dream Girls to go out into space with just so I can have like that energy and those Harold Wheeler orchestrations plowing me for days. But also the uh Cleveland Derrick's vocal arrangements, which have never sounded better than the original cast because no one is over singing. They are singing accordingly to the time period, which I love. Wait, Cleveland Derrick did the vocal arrangements? Sure did. Sure did. I had no idea. That's incredible. Yeah. And in fact, if you watch, there's a, there's a TV special where they're auditioning actresses out in LA for the LA production that Jennifer Holiday will eventually star in. And he's the one out there auditioning people, not Michael Bennett. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. It's the things we learn. I don't even know how I found that out, but I remember finding that out and just going, okay, Cleveland Derricks, you get it. But I mean, those vocal arrangements are insane. And I love watching the video bootleg of dream girls where they just get applause for random vocal moments all the time. The Cadillac car, the smooth, the sound and uh, the when the way they blend on uh, take your way to the top. I, I, I want to say one little tangent and then I will swear we're going to move on. Something that bugs me. And I'm so glad that Cheryl Lee Ralph is on record as to saying this is Dina's now who are, wonderful vocalists but oversing the role of dina right and the whole point of it is that that's not who she is yes she is not a bad singer she's just a purely okay singer and that is what gets them to the next level is that her voice is so not powerful that they can cross over and she she's even said in the original run of the show she would do nightclub acts and sing her normal way so people would know she actually was a good singer 
And she said, you lose the dramatic tension if you have Beyonce wailing out, listen, next to Jennifer Hudson also wailing yeah. out. And I am telling you. And I think there's a bit of an ego to some performers these days where it's like, well, I do want the audience to know that I am a good singer. And I also want the audience to know that I'm smarter than my character, which is why so much comedy now is like wink, wink to the audience. I'm like, no, 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 no. Your character is dumb. And I'm not just be in it. Yeah. Just be the character. Uh, But so I, I love that original blend of the three of them on fake your way to the top. When you have Loretta divine doing it. And then Cheryl Lee Ralph and her head voice. It's just so smooth. And then they blend so well. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I I don't love it when it is oversung. So I just want to say that little diatribe. But I still maintain, I think that this score of nine is a deserving winner. And especially because it is a tough one. Because catch me on the right day, Peter. Catch me with the right amount of coffee. And I'll be like, you know what? Dream girls. Or catch me with a glass of rosé. And I'll be like, fuck it, merrily. And then catch me on a day where I'm feeling super antagonistic. Or I'm in a room full of assholes. And I go, Joseph. Just to fuck. I don't believe that. I don't right. believe that for a second. You know what I actually love about the Joseph Tony performance that year is that it is just the whole show in four minutes. They do 10 seconds of every song in four minutes. Which is basically what Into the Woods did in its original production and in the 2002 revival. Where they yeah, do that they memory where like you almost try to get the whole show into five minutes. It's yeah. so fast. I love the original one with Angela Lansbury doing the voiceover. And then she gets to end the mm-hmm. moral of the tale. And Felicia Rasad just starts to go, careful the things you say. Oh, my God. I'm Guys, you should be grateful that we're not doing video. But uh, you just missed Peter's cat fully going across the screen, Jellicle style. She was like, I prefer my witch. Thank you very much. Yes. She- <laughs> Listen, there is a witch. Her name is Bernadette Peters, and she is, we stand. We stand that queen. Sometimes there are roles that it's very hard for somebody else to come into, which is also why it's so funny to think that she did such a brief run in that original production. Yeah. But that filming just cemented her witch in the, the minds of multiple generations. I mean, that filming, it, it's so funny we think about that filming, just how iconic and perfect it is. And it is. But it also comes, they filmed it at the end of the run and a lot of them had to come back to do it. But at that right. point, they all knew that show so well in and out. Like they knew what worked. They knew how to play off of each other. They knew how to land certain moments. Like they had a lot of time to really get the minutia of that material down, which is why it's just so incredible because they are just nailing everything. The Some of us don't like the way you've been telling it. Uh, yeah, I mean, her readings, they're unsurpassable. But and people keep trying, and, and bless them. But it's, it's them. just, I don't know if you'll ever be able to climb that wall. I mean, you try to do Bernadette's stepmother in Cinderella. You can't. It's just, it's laughable. <laughs> it's laughable. All right, give, uh, give me one of yours, Quirin. Um, Let's go, we'll do a director. Um, this awesome. is 2003. Uh, Joe Mantello directing Take Me Out uh, and winning the Tony Award. Joe was in a category with Lawrence Boswell for A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, Robert Falls for Long Day's Journey, who I think had a lot of momentum behind him going in there, uh, and Deborah Warner uh, for Medea, which was closed but had been quite celebrated. Um, Mm -hmm. And to me, uh, having seen three of the four of these, it was Joe's direction of Take Me Out that took a really great play and made it fantastic. Mm. That I remember feeling that there was energy in the staging of the play. Um, and again, like I know we were talking about like stagings before, but this was one where I think the, you know, whatever bells and whistles Joe threw into it really helped tell the story and make it as exciting and energizing as possible. 
Agreed. And correct me if I'm wrong, I may absolutely be rewriting history here, but I feel like with Joe Mantello as a director on Broadway, because he had done some stuff in New York pre-Love, Valor, Compassion, uh, around this, uh, maybe like a year or two before Angels, he had done some off-Broadway stuff, but Love, Valor, Compassion was really the play that made him land as a director on Broadway. And then he didn't really do anything for the rest of the 90s that maintained that level of you're here you're a director we're here to watch and i feel like take me out was sort of not a return but like a no 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 we were right we were right to to celebrate him before like he's he's back with something really great again yeah i think take me out is sort of when he becomes like like a a hot broadway director versus like a hot off broadway director yeah but also take me out began i didn't begin off broadway it began at the donmar in london i actually had seen it off broadway and on and off broadway was three acts and on broadway was two acts and again you know credit to joe mantello and richard greenberg they were able to trim this three-act play make mm-hmm. it a you know one intermission piece and keep all of the energy if not actually make it more exciting that does make sense to me, though, that it used to be three acts because act two takes a couple of turns where I'm like, are we, is this still the play? Sure. Uh, and that's just something that I I felt and the last revival, which is also why I'm not, I wasn't the most on board with that revival winning, but also I was such a how I learned to drive stand that season that yeah. like you could not tell me, you could not tell me that anything else was better. I, 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 I'm still kind of in that haze. I still won't hear it, but. I will allow people to have their feelings about other performances and productions. I still remember seeing Take Me Out on Broadway because I had seen it off Broadway during Thanksgiving break and I was mm-hmm. in college. And then during spring break, a bunch of my friends were in New York and I was like, no, let's go see this play on Broadway. And I remember the front row seats in that theater were $19. Oh. And even then I was like, ooh, a student rush under $20. This is exciting. Yeah. that's I, I, I miss when rush was actually affordable. Not that it's like super expensive now, but it's... It was it was a little easier. It was easier back in the sure. day. I mean, I touched the date off my student ID in 2005, but I don't think I can still use it. <laughs> no, I still have my college ID, but no, I can't still use it. Um, thank God for TDF, I guess. You know, this is this is a good win. And this is also a very good lineup. I had not seen any of these plays, but this was around the time I was getting into plays because this was this was the same year as uh, I Am My Own Wife, was it not? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I remember- No, I actually don't think it was because um uh, uh Brian Denny won and so did Jefferson right. Mays. You're correct. Jefferson Mays won the next year. So yeah, I think I and my own wife was when I really started to go down the play route. I think before, yeah, the only two plays I had seen on Broadway at this point were Metamorphoses and A Thousand Clowns with Tom Selleck, oddly enough. <laughs> and yeah, my grandma wanted me to see it, and I'm glad I did. But then yeah, once I started well, seeing I saw I a thousand my- clowns with um Judd Hirsch when he replaced it was like the 90s roundabout revival and it was supposed to be Robert Klein and Jane Adams and then during either rehearsals or previews Robert Klein and Jane Adams left and Judd Hirsch came in and um Marin Hinkle from Maisel you know what Marin Hinkle would have been good yeah and she yeah. was I remember seeing it yeah I mean also for anyone who wants to watch a thousand clowns you can watch the movie version with our queen Miss Barbara Harris who uh Stay tuned. We're going to be honoring her on on our Instagram in the next couple of weeks, but not in the way you expect, though. So, yeah, no, this is a good win. I'm down for this. I'm down for this whole category. These are all good directors. Yeah. Uh, I've heard so many amazing things about that long day's journey. I I would like to go to the library to watch that. We have Dennehy. We have Redgrave. And that's also Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robert Sean Leonard, is it not? Sure is. 
I mean, talk about just fucking you up with acting. Yeah, I mean, it was a star-studded affair. Dennehy and Redgrave won. I'm pretty sure the whole revival won. The re- they um, did win revival. I remember that. Although I do remember actually that going into it, people weren't sure where Brian Dennehy was going to win. It escapes me now who the other front. I think was. there was talk of Izzard possibly winning for Day and the Death because mm-hmm. that play has never totally gotten its due and he was considered to be quite the she. surprise in it. Um, say what? Oh, sorry. She, sorry. She. So I, so I apologize, everybody. Uh, was Eddie going by he though at the time of the Tonys that year though? I think so. Yeah. yeah I think so. so I, I'm going, I'm backtracking in that respect, but yes, she, uh, he at the time, she now was considered quite the, not revelation. It wasn't like they had uh, reinterpreted the role, but just that their Broadway debut was so, strong and there was the celebrity quoted to it but yeah i don't think then he was considered a, a lock by any means i feel like no and was, then he had just won you know but four years I, earlier yeah and i feel like it was between redgrave and fiona shaw for medea that year but that one at the time for, you know again i was in college and i was not as adept necessarily at reading the tea leaves but that one felt like vanessa redgrave kind of had it more locked up yeah, but again, that comes from, oh, your show is still running. There can still be, there's an energy around a still running show that it's hard to maintain when your show has closed. And I, I, I just remember at the time, and again, it's been a long time. And then I was young. I was young and naive. I remember the there was a lot of talk from pundits of being more sort of like, not that it was an all out battle, but that it it just, it came down to those two, that those were the only two options to win. Um, I believe... Fun fact, that was the one random year of my life where I kept like a GeoCities website about the Tonys that year with predictions. And I just want to get on the record that I predicted Michelle Pock for Hollywood Arms, which did obviously come to pass, sure uh, but was not expected by the pundits who were getting paid for their predictions. Mm-mm. We love it when that happens. I mean, listen, pundits are wrong all the time. I'm wrong all the time. But I remember I was talking about this, I think last week on Gold Derby. All the pundits for months, none of them had Top Dog Underdog listed as a nominee for Best Revival of a Play this year. And I was like, really? What? You, you I, I think it's funny because my one outrage from when I looked at the nominations this year, my largest outrage, I should say, was not seeing Kenny Leon there. Yeah. Um, because I thought that revival was just sort of hands down the my favorite revival this year i think i have to go back and look at everything to be really sure but if i'm going to be you know hyperbolic i'm going to say yes you know it was was, favorite of the year it was great and i'm so glad that the two of them were nominated both of them i'm trying to there yeah there are two directing nominees this year that i probably would swap out for kenny leon and then um what's his face for prima facie but i won't say who's we can get down that road later this month y'all but it's overall a decent category uh I'm going to go to one of mine now. We have best leading actress in a play of, I think this is 2007, Julie White for Little Dog Laughed. She's beating out Eve Best for Moon uh, for the Misbegotten, Susie Kurtz for Heartbreak House, Angela Lansbury for Deuce, and Vanessa Redgrave for Year of Magical Thinking. I recall this really being down to Eve Best and Vanessa Redgrave. I rem- This is what I recall. And this is something where, this is something where, I, because I, I was at I was at a Tony party and we all had our predictions down and none of us had seen 
the majority of these nominees. So we were literally just going off of like theater talk and the New York Times roundtable and all that stuff. We're like, okay, what are the people who've seen these performances saying? And on the day of the party, like Julie, the, Julie, they are announcing Julie's category. And as they're announcing, I shout very loudly from my gut, I'm changing my prediction to Julie White because I had in the back of my brain, similar to what we were talking about earlier, while all these pundits were predicting either Eve or Vanessa, they all were saying like, but you know who was really great was Julie White. Like she really kind of kept that show chugging along. And I was like, huh, if everyone's thinking this, it could happen. And then when they were uh, naming all the nominees, the theater was really loud for Julie. I was like, yep, I'm sticking to it. It's Julie White. It's Julie White. And then she won. And I felt like a fortune teller. But that is, that is correct me if I'm wrong, that's the energy I recall going into that night was that those were the two that people were talking about the most. Yeah, oh, I think so. I, I don't know that, I, I didn't feel like Vanessa Redgrave was as much uh, in the conversation as Eve Best. I think they were both certainly in the conversation. But I think the consensus had kind of circled around Eve Best a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, I This, to this day, 2007 remains the one Tony Award ceremony I actually attended. And I was there with a friend of Julie White's. And I had, in the week leading up to the Tonys, been like, Julie's going to win. I know she's going to win. Trust me. I'm always right. And as we sat there and they started to announce the nominees in the category, my heart was pounding. Because suddenly I was like, what if I have gotten my friend's hopes up and she's all excited to see her friend win a Tony Award? And like she's going to glare at me and be so annoyed that she took me to this ceremony and yada, yada, yada. And I was quite relieved to see that Julie White did win. And I agree with you. She deserved it. The only performance here I did not see, to be fair, it was Vanessa Redgraves. Um, but at the but at the time, I, I felt pretty strongly that Julie White's yeah. was who I'd seen off-Broadway and on twice, I think. I think I saw Little Dog Left three different times. Um, she was fantastic. She was. It's, it's, it, 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 uh, I love Julie. I've, I've been on the record as loving her so much. And one of the replacement actresses in a show where everything kind of sparked in a way that I didn't know could when I saw her uh, replace Sigourney Weaver in Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, a play that I had already really loved. And then I saw her in it for, I believe it was Billy Magnuson's final performance. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I could love this play more than I did already. But like Julie White has really elevated this part of uh, uh, yeah, Masha. Masha is that part. And I think she's just so incredible. You know, it was, I recall a lot of fervor around Eve Best. I feel like she won all the precursors and like the narrative was sort of like, she's eclipsing Kevin Spacey on the stage. And like that role is just such a role. Vanessa, again, it's like those on paper predictions where people are like, it's Vanessa Redgrave in a one woman show that is just very depressing. And she's holding it. She's holding down the fort. But she'd also, again, like she'd won a few years earlier. It's yeah. not like this woman had not been honored sufficiently. No. Um, and I think Julie White kind of, I mean, the play itself and her performance, I think it just connected with like theater industry. Absolutely. When when Little Dog Left got nominated for play as well, I feel like that was an indication that there was a lot of love for her performance because the play had closed by that point and did not... Mm-hmm. last very long on Broadway and it's almost felt like it didn't make much of an impression. They stupidly opened at the then court now James Earl Jones theater, which is that's a theater you really can't open at unless you have momentum behind you or a major star. If you are a play with no names or a musical with no names, good luck trying to get traction because you are so far out there. You are not in the thick of the, of the hub hullabaloo of the streets. So and I think another thing Matt, that, 
Eve Best may have had going against her that night is the fact that that revival came really quick on the heels of the prior Moon for the Misbegotten revival. We're talking seven years later to ask people to sit through a three-hour play again, you know? Yeah. When people had really enjoyed it a few years earlier with Cherry Jones and um, Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's very difficult to compete with the memory of Jones. You know what I mean? Chastain tried to do it with the heiress and it just was a losing battle, baby. But she's doing such a good job now in Doll's House. Which I have not seen yet. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I did not think I was going to like this revival of a Doll's House, Peter, because I don't like Eva Van Hoffe. And this revival was giving me very Van Hoffe vibes. And I went in. And by the time it was over, I said, fuck, this is compelling. And I really enjoyed it. Oh, funny, because I mean, obviously, it's Jimmy Lloyd. And I, again, I haven't seen it, but the vibes I get from it are very like the Betrayal revival, which I had seen in London. And then they brought the same cast here in a production directed by Jimmy Lloyd, mm-hmm. where it is that kind of like really spare, where, you know, it's just the three of us in this yeah. play and the set is going to be real small. Yeah, I actually didn't see that Betrayal, but I I have a friend who saw it who is not a play person. They are very big on musicals. They see Wicked every chance they can get. But he had said to me, he said, you know, Matt, I've never seen acting that good before. And I said, John, not John Miscavige, everybody. My other friend, John, I said, John, look at you seeing a Pinter play and enjoying it. Uh, congrats, Jamie Lloyd. I, I, yeah, I think just anytime I see something that's like, we're doing something new, I'm always just like, oh God, is this going to be a Van Hoffe situation? Are they going to have, you know, like camera phones and, and shit and like dance around in milk? And they didn't. <laughs> Let's do another category. I'm going to pick one for you. Great. Because I want to talk about this one. I love I love obsessing about her, and I haven't obsessed about her in years. <clears throat> 2004, Miss Anika Noni Rose winning for Caroline Unt Change. And I adore this win. I, in my mind... I'm looking at I'm looking at your precursors here with Isabel Keating winning for the Drama Desk for Boy from Oz, Karen Ziemba winning the Outer Critics Circle, where Anika Noni Rose wasn't even nominated. In my mind, in my 14 year old brain, having just seen Anika like the month prior, I just remember being like, "She's gonna win. She's gonna win." Like it's yeah, it seems so obvious in retrospect, and maybe even at the moment because her performance was like kind of the heart of that show. Yeah, but for whatever reason, she just did not make an impression in the precursors, and I don't think going into it that there was a lot of momentum for her. But it's like kind of feels like it's just the best. It's one of those like should win. Yeah, like just it look. It's it's the performance of the category and a really good category. I mean, Beth Fowler from Boy from Oz is there as well as Elizabeth, Isabel Keating from Boy from Oz. There's also Jennifer Westfeld in the Donna Murphy Wonderful Town Revival, and as you said, Karen Ziemba for Never Gonna Dance. It, it seems like it's a no brainer that Rose would win. Um, yeah. And I'm really glad that she did. As am I. I'm I am sad we don't have Vianne Cox for Carolina Change in this category as well, who was so heartbreaking and funny in that show. Not that she would have beaten Anika, not for a second, because Anika just pissed all over that stage. But and it's hard it's hard to talk sometimes about a performance that someone's given and while comparing it to another performance of that same role someone else gives and like not be shitting on that person, I don't want to shit on Samantha Williams, who I actually saw this year in Dear World, and she was stunning. That girl is stunning. But seeing her as Emmy in the last revival of Carolina Change just sort of reminded me how, how brilliant Anika was and how still Anika could be. Like the way that they had the ending of the show where Anika just stared out at the audience and stared you down as she did the final 
piece of music. It just it it just grabbed you by the coat and kept you there. And I thought to myself, 14-year-old me who knew nothing of the world or really of art, I just thought, who the fuck is this girl? I am obsessed with you. And when she won, it just felt so correct. And I feel yeah. like we all think of that way. I wonder if, you know, look, the reality is she was 20 years older than the role was when she yeah. played the role. You know, she was like 33 years old. So not quite 20 years, 15, 16, 17 years older than the role really is. But I wonder if some of that allowed her to bring that like incredible grounding to it. Mm-hmm. But the whole notion in the show that she is, you know, this next generation, you really felt by the end of that piece, like you were in good hands and you wanted the sort of stoic fighter that you knew lived in her. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's still so good at being a child. Like that first act when she's doing the, you remember fun mama down at the parking lot, alongside the A&W. She's just, she's having a teenager's good time and she's being carefree and obnoxious but you're not hating her like that's the thing is there are times when emmy is a bitch like and like just being nasty to her mother who's not she's a teenager but, yeah she's a teenager she and and a teenager who's a bit holier than thou and you know she gets a little bit of information that her mother doesn't know about the world and she thinks that makes her smarter and better and stronger and it's cute for a second until she just whips around and is nasty at the Hanukkah party. And then she checks herself. The, her, I hate the bus. Is, the, the way she sings, Mama, I'm sorry I called you a maid. Ugh. Ugh. Mama, I'm sorry I called you a maid. This honestly, this whole podcast, Peter, is very much a Janine DeSori stan account. Because Fair. I, Come yeah, in. I mean, Carolina Change, Violet. Fun home. I adore Kimberly Akimbo. Even Millie, with all of its problems, has so many jazzy bops to it. And Shrek has a, such a fun score. I, I just, I, I love that woman, and I want her to keep working until she's dead because it will please me. I love that you pull out that, um, that it's not a line reading. It's a, you know, it's a lyric. It's sung, but um, that moment, uh, you know, Mama, I'm sorry, I called you a maid in the way it's sung because it, it kind of reminds me of a couple other cast albums where, like, sometimes when a soprano like really holds back. It can be so touching. It's like on Wicked when Chris and Shannon is like, you can't have all you ever wanted. Like mm-hmm. it's so restrained and gentle and it's like quarter voiced. And I love that. Or even like um, when Alice Ripley and Sideshow is like, but you're the man I love to t- um, to Buddy at the end. It's like you could really make a meal of that. And instead you, she plays just like the simple heartbreak of it. And it really translates on an album. Absolutely. And and. Also being able to do musicality while also conversational. It's something that Emily Skinner is really good at. It actually bugs one of my music director friends. I won't name names because he might be working on Broadway right now. But he's always like, can Emily Skinner like hold a note longer than two beats? I'm like, yes, she can. But the actress in her knows when it's not necessary, which is what I love about her sideshow. When she go, uh, the uh, feeling love is normal. Hiding it is not. Like She's not extending any of it because... She's acting. She's so good at it. And Anika does the same thing. Kristen does the same thing. It's what I love about how Kristen begins for good. She's like shortchanging all of the notes because she's so overcome with emotion. I've heard it said. Ah, God. You know what I love, Peter? Good actresses. I love good actresses. Me too. They can fuck me up. They can twist my arm and choke me. I love it. All right. Um, I picked one of yours. You want to pick one of mine? Yeah. I want to talk about um, featured actress in the musical 2005, Sadar Ramirez for Spamalot. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, tell me, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, again, I saw Sotomayor do this role. I, I think they were fantastic in the part. Super curious why this to you is one that stood out as like the Tony's nailing it. So, first of all, once again, talk about a goddamn murderer's row here. We have Sarah Ramirez for Spamalot. We have Jan Maxwell for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We have Joanna Gleason for Dirty Round Scoundrels, Kelly O'Hara for Piazza, and CLA Keenan Bolcher for Spelling Bee. I mean, truly talk about an orgy I want to go to. Now, I love all these women, and going in that night, I was rooting for Kelly. Having just seen Sada, actually, no, I was seeing Sada in Spamalot, I think, a month later. So I hadn't even, I wasn't even knowing what she was doing in that show. And I saw her in the show and she was extraordinary. But I thought to myself, well, it's the role. She's got these big, powerful songs. How can you not steal the show when you're doing all this? And then two years later, and again, it's hard to talk about this and make it sound like I'm shitting on someone. So let me just remind everyone how much I adore Marin Maisie, how much I loved her in Kiss Me Kate. I adored her in The King and I. I saw her in Spamalot about two years later. And by that point, the show was no longer like the huge hit that it was it was still doing okay but it wasn't selling out every night and Marin, who is who was a very funny woman again simulating childbirth and kiss me kate and a glorious singer but there was something a little off she wasn't the jokes weren't landing quite as hard and the songs weren't blowing the roof off quite as much and i thought to myself oh Sarah actually did something very special with this role that does deserve rewarding because she made the role seem better than it was. She made her songs seem better than they were. Whereas, and this is not me saying like one thing deserves it over another. Because again, if you were to say, well, Kelly O'Hara actually won that year, they counted the ballots wrong. I'd be like, okay, yeah, no, sure. Kelly deserved it. Or you'd be like, oh, Celia won actually. I'm like, yeah, sure. Totally give it to her. But why I'm happy Sarah won is I think it's so rare to take material that's not fantastic especially in comedy where like there's a barometer to know how you're doing in a comedy you know they're, they're either laughing or they're not with a musical number or they're either whooping and hollering or they're not and what she does with diva's lament which is just a very unfunny song and i've since watched Merle <laughs> dandridge not do it well i've watched lauren kennedy not do it well and it's not their fault the song's not very good but I recall how much Sarah just destroyed it. And there's even there's video footage of it as well of her just destroying it. And it's one of those things where I'm like, it's just she was the right fit for that role and something about what she could do. And maybe it was also just like she had the luck of being in it the year that it was a hot ticket. So people went in wanting to love it. But I just feel like she spun straw into gold. And that is very much deserving of recognition so that's my take uh it's not to demean anyone else in this category like i said i would love it if they all would taught me to just take turns but i am not upset at all about sarah's win here um no nor am i upset about sarah's win i think that my but it's i look at the category and agree it's stacked but it's easy for me to say i would have voted for kelly o'hara and line the piazza i mean at this point i had seen kelly o'hara do um Suit Smell of Success, where I, I'm not sure that the material allowed her to make an incredible impression. No. And then I had seen Kelly do um, Light in the Piazza out of town at the Goodman in Chicago, where she played Franca, where she played the Sarah Uriarty Berry role, or what the role that Sarah Uriarty Berry would play at the Vivian Beaumont. Um, and which is a performance that remains to this day my favorite Kelly O'Hara performance, where I felt she was sexy and funny and fiery and just like completely 180 from the sort of meek character she'd played in Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm. And then to go back a year later and see Kelly O'Hara do 
um, Clara on Broadway and see that she had that in her also. I, at that point, was like, oh, okay, I'm very excited about this performer. She, like, the, the bag of tricks, her, the size of her toolbox is yeah. really apparent. You were ahead of the game because the, oh, we keep underestimating Kelly O'Hara narrative started after Piazza. When Kelly did Piazza, we were all like, oh, glorious, a beautiful soprano on Broadway. We love it. And then she got cast a pajama game and we all went, the fuck? And then she nailed Pajama Game, in my opinion, nailed Pajama Game. And we went, oh, I guess she's capable of more than we realized. And then she got cast in South Pacific. And everyone once again went, the fuck? And then she did a great job. And again, we all went, oh, I guess she's capable of more than we realized. And just sort of like, it was that rinse and repeat for like 10 years. Until mm-hmm. finally we were like, you know what? I think there's a lot that Kelly O'Hara can do. So you were ahead of everyone on that. I just thought she was really stunning in the part. And and these are all great. I mean, like, I loved Celia and Spelling Bee. Um, you can't go wrong with Joanna Gleason, et cetera. You know, I, I just, um, but there was something about seeing the range of Kelly O'Hara so sort of, I mean, I'm going to call it early in her career, but I'm sure it didn't feel early in her career to her. Yeah. But to me as a spectator, it did. Um, and I was like, this is an actor I'm excited to watch and track. Yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, I will also say I saw her again do the role in the 10-year the anniversary concert that they did at the Beaumont and how was that oh it was amazing oh it was one of my favorite nights of all time first of all Victoria just uh, I feel like Victoria wakes up out of bed and like hey Vicky do Piazza now and she's like okay Florence Italy just like can just drop in like in any moment uh I also adore Sarah you're right Barry in that show and I was so happy to see her do it again and Kelly really just like I, I I saw her pretty early in the Broadway run and thought she was stunning. And seeing her on uh, do it 10 years later, I'm like, oh, you have found so many things in this show that I feel like it took you a while to find. Not that you were bad before, but just like it, it went to a whole new level and she was so in control of it. And it just was it was just fantastic. And she's even said, like, it took her a minute to find Clara. And I was it was just great to watch her be totally in command and get a full minute long ovation for the title song like we wow. would not let the show continue because she went and sat down and we just kept applauding and then she sort of like did a nod and we were like no bitch stand up and bow and then so she finally had to stand up and bow and then we continued wow. uh, love it uh speaking of featured actress in a musical i want to do my last one of this category 1976 Kelly Bishop for a chorus line, beating out Priscilla Lopez for a chorus line, Betty Lupin for Robert Bridegroom, and Virginia Seidel for Very Good Eddie. Now, everyone, I know what you're thinking. Matt, Virginia absolutely deserved it. Very Good Eddie, you know, classic, <laughs> iconic. Classic, iconic, titanic. And I say, yes, I know. But no, the truth is that it was down to Kelly and Priscilla. And at the time going in, everyone thought it was going to be Priscilla Lopez because Priscilla had what I did for love, which became the big pop hit of the show and, you know, also had nothing. So she had, she had a lot of singing to do and Kelly's role was really all scene work. And I think it's, I mean, it sounds so weird to say like they made the right choice. Cause I feel like a lot of people feel this way, but I want to kind of just congratulate the 1976 voters that for picking Kelly a, cause no, just a short four years later, Priscilla would get hers. And so I don't we don't feel bad. But when I watch Kelly do Sheila, when I watch either the Lincoln Center video or I watch the video from the uh, record breaking performance where they become the longest running show on Broadway. 
she, oh my her, God, I love that recording. It's so good. Her scene pre at the ballet is incredible. So there, you you see the vulnerability underneath the tough exterior that we also would come to love in Gilmore Girls, but like she like her, so many people just think of doing Sheila as an outright bitch, and it's like no 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 no. There is so much pain and insecurity underneath there. So you have it's you have to know what the exterior is covering. And you could see that with her and the sensuality and the humor she's able to find. One of my favorite moments she does, and others have tried to do it, but they don't do it as well, is when she's talking about how uh how her mother basically, you know, planted the seed of wanting to dance in her brain. She goes, oh, and then she would give me her old toe shoes, which I used to run down the sidewalk in on my toes. And then she just looks over at the others. And she goes, at five. It was just with this total, like, yeah, I'm that bitch. And like, did it like, she does like a little hip swivel afterwards because she's sort of repositioning herself after just serving everyone. And no one has been able to land that like she did. And it's just so good. Ugh, I love her. I love this win. I love this win so much. I mean, I agree with you. I think that Tony's got it right. My real question for you is, do you think that Tony's got it right putting Donna McKechnie, Cassie in leading rather than featured where they would put her years later in a revival? Yes. Obviously, Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera did not think that the Tony's got it right. Yeah. And well, Elsa and Gwen Verdon famously said when Donna got nominated, she said, but she can't act. And Oof. I oh, Gwen, I think Gwen was just being mean because that was Chicago was her baby and she could sort of feel it slipping away from her. Um, the thing is like, normally I would not say that Cassie is the lead. I think she is the most prominent in the show watching that original cast. And also just sort of, I think the energy of who everyone was in that show, Donna was by far the most well-known in that production. Sure. And the way that she, the way that like, the whole cast is sort of directed. Donna is a little more at the forefront. So I do think it is category fraud overall, but I can definitely get in the heads of the nominators that year. Uh, first of all, chorus line being the huge hit that it was. And, you know, if Bennett and Joe Papp say, we want to put Donna in lead, they'll be like, yeah, sure. Whatever you want, whatever you want. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually haven't heard many stories and please correct me if you know of them, but like of producers requesting a category shift for somebody and not it being granted it. Um, well, Rudin wanting One Man, Two Governors to be considered a revival. That's the most recent okay, one I can think of. Yeah. yeah. And and then they ended up not getting in for play because of it, because he, he tried very hard to get it in for revival. And they basically said, go fuck yourself. Uh, this is new. Uh, the play you are saying this is a revival of premiered 200 years ago and never on Broadway. So sure. good day, sir. Uh, I also find it so fascinating when these roles flip categories. I mean, like, look at the biggest yeah. wife. You know, Joanna Gleason won the Drama Desk for Featured Actress, won the Tony for Leading Actress. You know, in the revival, yeah. even though, um, oh my God, what's her name? Uh, uh, Carrie O'Malley, even though she wasn't nominated in 2002, they, they had ruled her eligible for Featured. And here we have Sarah Bareilles in Leading again. Yeah. Well, and the same thing with the Olivier, sometimes roles that win supporting here, win lead over over there and vice versa. I mean, also think about this. Like We have... Um, What's her face? Uh, is it Carlin Glenn from Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, who is objectively featured. the lead of the show put in feature? But, but at least then I can go, they didn't request that she be put in that category. She was under the title. So therefore, without intervention, she was going to be in the featured category, right? It's not like the Olivier's where things are absolutely wacky in every way. And they're like, we'll nominate, you know, 17 people from the same show that, you know, every year the Olivier's nominate Lori Peters and the children from the Santa Music kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, the the... 
the name placement over the title thing, I believe that changed post-1776. I believe. Which is about 69? 69, yeah. Because William Daniels, he campaigned to be put in lead and got denied because of the title thing. So he, uh, I think, I don't even think he got nominated for featured anymore because he withdrew his name. I think they actually granted his wish and yeah, took it up, took him out of consideration. Yeah, he's like, I'm a lead. It's bullshit that I'd be put in featured. And so he just wasn't nominated at all, which is fine because Jerry Orbach's win for Promises, Promises is wonderful. But uh, after that, I think it became, that's when they started doing the petitioning of like, you put forward what you want and we'll decide whether or not to grant it. Uh, and so- yeah, I don't I don't think in terms of actors, there's many times that the committee denies a production when they say we would like this actor here or there. And with Donna in Chorus Line, by the time that the nominations came out, the show had been open for almost a year and she became the face of the show. So just on a publicity level, it sort of made sense. It was like you think of Chorus Line, you think of Donna. Uh, so I get it. I get why it happened, but no, I also, I do not think Cassie is the lead, but I'm not mad that Donna won that year either. Uh, I fully co-sign that. I mean, I'm like, she's iconic in the role and I would have, you know, checked the box for her. Sorry to the women of Chicago and Christine Andreas, but that's just how it is. Once she was in the category, you would have gotten my check mark, but. Yeah. I mean, um, I just, just the way she sings music in the mirror alone. I, I, I just go, yeah, no, give it to her. Just give it to her. And that dance that's like built for that instrument. Absolutely. And you don't realize how much it is to fine tuned to her body until you watch other wonderful dancers who do not have her body do it. And something just always feels a little off, you know, it's like, but see, that's where I think it starts to get weird because like Anne ranking replaced Donna McKechnie, right. Mm-hmm. And ranking. And I remember reading about this. It's in one of the famous, you know, coffee table books about a chorus line, you know, and then I've got all that, over there. Exactly. I think it's the one that has the caricatures with Barbara Streisand as somebody, you know, whatever. in one of the, yeah you know, bifold, whatever it is. Um, but in that book, I think they say something about how like Bennett came back and like addressed the fact that Anne Ranking is a legs dancer and Don McKechnie is an upper body dancer, forgive me, was an upper body dancer, Anne Ranking, excuse me, lower body dancer, Anne Ranking. Um, and then actually adjusted the choreography so that Anne Ranking would shine in it. Like, why don't we get that opportunity for other dancers in that feature? Like why, like, why not? Because yeah. we seem to be very stuck in a chorus line where it's like, it's got to be what we see on these charts. And those charts are an incredible record of this original production. But I th- start, I'm starting to feel like they are damaging the show in general. Yeah, well, Bennett was always good about that with his shows. I mean, Dreamgirls, he totally would restage things based on how the Effie could move. Like, there, there's like three different choreography uh, editions of Move, of Dreamgirls, of Party Party, based on like your Effie's dance abilities. And so well, I like that he was able to do that. Like, because like Holiday couldn't move so all, that uh, it's all port for all the dreams <laughs> movements uh and then like lilius white she was she could move so he's like okay we'll do some fancy footwork for you but fossey was also like kind of a stickler about that he he would not bend in the way that bennett would like there's famous stories of dancing speaking of Anne ranking with the trumpet solo it was about you know if you were her understudy or if you were her replacement uh you know you had to do it as well as she could or or almost as good and he wouldn't Rather than adjust the number to the dancer he had after Anne left, he was like, no, 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 you you do what Anne did. And if you don't do it as well, then you don't get the blue dress that she wears. And I I find that, oh, oh yeah, there's a whole story about that blue dress and dance. And it's, it is hilarious and toxic. Um, but uh, um, no, I, I, I wish that we would do that more with Cassie now, because if it was done so many times, 
in the 16 year Broadway run, there have to be versions written down that we can give to women who have not Donna McKechnie's body. Totally. And they just like have a different instrument that they're working with. But I want to piggyback on your William Daniels and talk about 1996 Best Actress in a Musical, the tabloid Tonys, Mm. uh, Donna Murphy winning for King and I, beating Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria, Daphne Rubin Vega for Rent and Krista Moore for Big. And obviously Julie Andrews had basically all of the momentum going into the Tony Award nominations Mm -hmm. uh, and then found herself one of Victor Victoria's, I believe, two nominations. Was it that? I think she was literally the only only one. She was the only one. Um, You know, after people really thought that Rachel York, et cetera, were going to be, you know, Tony Roberts were going to be a part of the conversation. And she made her famous speech and she asked to be, you know, removed from consideration. But the Tonys did not grant that in any kind of codified way they simply left her on the ballot and they said that's up to the voters like Mm -hmm. you can accept it or you cannot accept it and there was a really and i remember feeling that there was a strong sense that julie andrews was going to win this tony anyways she hadn't won for my fair lady she lost to judy holiday she hadn't won for camelot i forget who she lost to oh did she know i'm 61 i I don't remember i think it's 60 um or maybe it's 61, huh? Keep, keep talking. I'm going to find out. Regardless, that, that like there was a real sense. And actually, I remember I was a child actor at the time and I was recording a series of voiceovers with one of the actors. That day it was not a voiceover for theater. It was like a Sears AT&T commercial with uh, one of the actors who was in Victor Victoria and later won a Tony. You could figure that out yourself. And I remember in the green room hearing people ask him, what do you think is going to happen on Sunday? You know, it was like the Thursday before the Tonys or something. You know, do you think Julie's going to win? Or you think people are going to be like, no, she doesn't want it. We're not going to vote for her. And he said he was so confident that she was going to win because not only did he think people who thought she deserved it were going to vote for her. He was like, I keep being told that people are so curious about what would happen if Julie Andrews won that they were going to vote for her anyway. Now, who I mean, this is obviously like, what do you say to somebody who's in a show? But um, I that really lodged in my 13 year old brain at the time. And I went into that awards uh, expecting Julie Andrews to win. I think like most of the audience did. And. I think having seen every performance in this category that the Tonys actually did right. Donna Murphy, like I love Julie Andrews in the movie of Victor Victoria, but I, I think the musical doesn't land for me in the same way as the movie. It just, it, the music doesn't actually add to it for me. Um, whereas Donna Murphy's production of The King and I, not that she directed, I think it was what Christopher Renshaw, um, yeah. but her performance in that, that production was my first exposure to King and I outside of the movie. And I remember being completely blown away by how like, dramatically sound this piece of theater was and how emotional it was. And she was such a huge part of that, that it made, in retrospect, I look at the list of people and I go, I would give this Tony to Donna Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say no, only to be a bitch, because I love Krista Moore and I love Big. And I That and cannot I- be. Of the four people in this category, you're going to go... You're going to die on the Krista Moore Hill. I'm not actually. No, no, no. Um, what I, I, who did Krista Moore lose the Tony for Gypsy to? Because. Randy Graff. Oh, Randy Graff for City of Angels. Okay. I can't begrudge Randy Graff City of Angels, but I. No, certainly I, not. Krista's actually kind of my favorite Louise and Gypsy. Um, I think Benanti does such a, a banger job with that strip and, and makes the most of that arc, but. Krista's first act is just so good and you really don't see her being the star she becomes in act one so that transformation just takes you by total surprise and not for nothing she was Arthur Lawrence's favorite Louise until Benanti but 
I, I'm also I'm just I'm a big Christopher Moore stan. I love that she's got such a heavy chest and such a heavy soprano, and there's no mix. It's just flips. What's the '90s? Come on. Yeah, it's I love that heavy singing from the '90s and '80s. Here we go again. Ah, oh, she's great. I love her. Um, what I also love about the category of best actress in 1996 is that when Bernadette Peters reads the names, she says Daphne Ruba Vega. Daphne Ruba Vega. Daphne Rubavega, Rent. I that I also Daphne is someone who I feel like I've only come to appreciate more and more over time. Especially I see other performances of hers. I think she's just such a class act, and she is so vibrant in Rent. But no, Donna's a great choice for that, and and I think that win has always been tainted for her because of the Julie Andrews of it all. But she should take away from it that she was a deserving winner that night. Peter, we have to take one more break. And we're back. Donna Murphy demanded we'd be back, so I say more nice things about her. Uh, okay. So you had your Donna. Let's do one of mine. Uh, I said the 2014 fe- feature actor. Um, how about best choreography of 2007 for Bill T. Jones on Spring Awakening? Now, this was not a sure thing. It seems like it was. Because Spring Awakening ended up sweeping like eight awards that night. And I do think, I think, I wonder if Jones actually won a precursor or not. But the momentum going in was mostly for Mary Poppins and kind of for Rob Ashford for Curtains. Everyone felt that it was his best work since Millie. Jerry Mitchell, I think because Legally Blonde underperformed with nominations, no one was really taking seriously. It was also his first time out as a director. So people were like, the nomination is your win. But I recall everyone being like, it's going to be Mary Poppins because of the tap of step in time gavin lee goes up the proscenium of the theater how can you not and then when bill t when spring awakening slowly started gaining momentum throughout the night and then bill t jones won we were all like oh but of course now that spring awakening is sweeping but i recall that going in that it was not a sure thing i also remember spring awakening wasn't a sure thing for book that year a lot of people thought it could be doug Wright for great gardens yeah i remember Uh, that specifically yeah, those were those were two awards that people were pretty sure it could it could lose, and it ended up winning both of them. I'm still on the fence about the book win because I like the book for both of those shows, and I think they both have their own issues and they both have their own merits. So I don't ask me to to tell you which one's the right one. I'm just gonna say we have that award. Choreography though, I'll be down for. I also remember seeing Spring Awakening. They had just opened. The theater was half full. I went with my grandmother. Same grandmother who took me to Carolina Change and Light in the Piazza. She took me to all the big critical darlings. And they were doing Touch Me. They were going across the stage, like sort of touching their chest and all that. And there were two couples in front of me. There was no two straight couple friends. And they were laughing so hard during that number. They just were not on board with it. And they wow. were they were mocking it all throughout the number and then during intermission. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this show's going to be more divisive than I thought. And going into the Tonys that night, that was sort of planted in my brain of those of that two cup, those two couples mocking the choreography while they were watching it. I also think it's worth mentioning that Bill T. Jones had like a storied career in dance before ever entering the you know the world of Tony consideration, and I think that does help to a certain extent. Like Rob Ashford, Jerry Mitchell, and Matthew Bourne all had Tony awards for best choreographer already. 
Oh, sure. That no, that absolutely helps. But again, they love to prove me wrong from time to time. They really do. And when they do, I love it. Like when Bob Crowley won set design for once. But a lot of times with these awards, with choreography or with design, they go for most and not always for best. And which is not to say, you know, that like the other nominees are bad. It's just that when it comes to dance, oftentimes it's like, you know, okay, what has the most choreography going on? What is the most impressive, technically speaking, not not thinking about the storytelling or the or the characters Uh, there? I've mentioned it before. I won't go into it too much, but there is a choreography win in the last couple of years for a revival that I do not like for a choreographer who I think is good, but it's just, it was choreography that was not story-based for me. It was not character-based for me. And in fact, the number they performed on the Tony Awards was a prime example of this because it was a bunch of characters who are uh, low-class, degenerate criminals and they're dancing like a bunch of power bottoms doing a hasty pudding show. And I'm like, this is, and they're doing impressive dancing, but none of it feels like it comes from those kind of people. And I was like, this should not win based on this alone, but it did win. And then I've had people yell at me and say I was wrong to which I say, okay, that is your journey. But I think that's how like someone like Rossella Daniela doesn't have a Tony award for choreographing and like, wasn't even nominated for the visit because there isn't that much dance in it. But to my eye, what dance there was was so perfect and so character driven that I remember the night before that nominations came out that I was like, come on, please give this woman the nomination. She needs it. I mean, she doesn't need it. I want her to have it. We all want her to have it. And that's the thing is like, there have been times when the Tonys actually did recognize this. If you read any of the Michael Bennett books with dream girls, when they won choreography, people actually thought people thought that dream girls was going to win direction and that nine was going to win choreography. And then it was when it happened the other way, a lot of people were sort of baffled by dream girls as choreography when they're like, there's not that much dancing in it. And or at least dancing the way that people think of dancing. But like motion. Yeah. And that's sort of what that was the argument that Bennett and Avian talked about. They're like, no, they're like, that show is choreographed down to like the pinky. It's, and it's always moving. That is choreography as much as any Which, kick. I mean, actually, in the conversation about Spring Awakening choreography here in 2007, I mean, and this is in concert, certainly with Michael Mayer's direction, but that's a show that was choreographed, you know, that was staged down to like every millisecond was prepared, that he had a stage full, the two of them had a stage full of young actors, in many mm-hmm. ways untested, and they really like codified every motion in that show to make sure the audience got the show every night. Absolutely. They kept it moving. And that was why they deserved their awards. They deserved their roses. All right. We've got a couple more. Let's let's wrap this mother up. Uh, Great. I'm you, 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 you. I'm going to do, you know, we sort of touched on this before, but, you know, when you said, when did the Tonys get it right? One thing that came to mind isn't actually a victory or, you know, a winner. But in 1972, they finally got their shit together and they figured out the best score category after decades of like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what stuck and spoiler alert, nothing stuck. You know, they had composer category where lyricists weren't even acknowledged. They had the category best composer lyricist that, you know, people like Lionel Bart won for Oliver and, um, you know, Jerry uh, Herman won for uh, Hello, Dolly. And then the category would disappear. And then 
Sondheim is the sole, as you mentioned, winner of a category for best music and a separate category for best lyrics. But thankfully, in 1972, the year after Company, they finally got it together and they said the category is called Best Score. It honors composer and lyricist. And that was pretty much with very little alteration how it's been ever since, with the exception of the shift that I think is great. Also, in 1994, they started to say it has to be written directly for the theater after the Who won, after Pete Townsend you know, tied for best score in 1993 for a score that had been written 20 years earlier. And you see in the decades prior, between 1972 and 1993, you definitely see a couple times where, you know, like a score that had been on screen gets nominated or that kind of a thing. Yeah, or um, when. But at least finally the lyricists are in the mix. It feels really strange and cruel to not have included them. Absolutely. I think the the uh thinking behind like Gigi winning in the 70s and then you know Townsend winning yeah. or tying for score in the 90s was like well if the music was written for that story that still counts and then by the time Tommy happens like no, no 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 we cannot award someone for a score they wrote 20 years ago that was never meant to go on stage that is that's a whole other thing uh there have been loopholes like things with Hadestown which were like it that was just always in development, so it's not like the score came out as an album and then got repurposed for the stage. No, and it was written for the theater. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, that's that's that is no, that is a good shift. I I agree with you on that. And so after years of getting it wrong, I think in 1972, the Tonys finally got it right. Yes, they finally. So it's so odd. It took them, you know, 23 years to get there, <laughs> but they did. They they did. Um. Okay, I have. I think I have two more. I have Katie Finneran, Best Featured Actress in a Play for Noises Off in 2002. And it's not so much that this was a surprise. I feel like this was definitely, people were like, this is this is what's going to happen. She's absolutely stealing the show. And this is a role, actually, that always gets nominated. Deborah Rush got nominated in the original. Beckon Hilty got nominated in the most recent. But I just want to look at, for a second, who she's up against here. We have Kate Burton for The Elephant Man, Elizabeth Franz, Estelle Parsons and Francis Sternhagen all I believe for mornings at seven that is yeah I mean think and like and Katie Finneran was like relatively young she had had I think three or four Broadway shows at this point but this was her first like real feature she understudied the female lead in um my favorite year which that's like the one role that no one really cares about she played the maid in the heiress and then she was the first I think I think she was no she was the third Sally Bowles in Cabaret but like for all of a month she played it for like a month while they were in between movie stars. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. She was I, mean, uh, I saw these performances. Yeah. And I um agree that Katie Finneran was totally wonderful. If you put a ballad in front of me though, I would hesitate for not a millisecond and check off Elizabeth Franz because her performance in that lives in my memory so vividly. Elizabeth Franz is one of those actresses where if you don't know who she is, you don't you don't like think about, you know, what you're missing out on. But if you do know who she is, if you experience just one of her performances, it's you're you're on board for life. I am devastated. I am devastated. I don't believe that there is any video footage of her doing Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All for you. I want to see that performance so badly. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to see that. I think the reason why she didn't win is that she had just won for Linda in Salesman four or five years prior. And and Mornings at Seven is a bit of a of an ensemble piece. And Katie Finneran was a major standout in Noises Off. And oh, yeah. it was that idea of like, oh, we found a new talent. And then it sort of took a while for her to kind of 
come back into the fold after that. But Katie Finneran is a very gifted comedic actress and was very special in that production. So I'm just, I'm, I think that is a good win. Uh, again, put a ballot in front of me. I don't know what I would tell you, but I look at that on paper and I go, nice, nice work there. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. All right. Hit me, daddy. All right, let's do 1992 Best Actor in a Musical, where Nathan Lane and Guys and Dolls had won the Outer Critics Circle and the Drama Desk leading up. The other nominees were Michael Rupert, who was in Falsettos and had been for, at that point, what, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Harry Groner, or Grainer, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think um, it's Groner. For, Groner for Crazy for You. And then the winner, Gregory Hines in Jelly's Last Jam, who I think surprised people when his name was called. But I think if you... To me, having seen these performances, and actually Heinz is the one that I had to see at the public library. The other ones mm-hmm. I saw live. Um, Heinz is heartbreaking. He is astonishing in the role. Mm-hmm. And you hear it on the album, too. I had always, you know, the reason I got off my butt and went to the library to see it was because I was obsessed with that album. And the ache in his voice in that performance and, you know, the, the, the depth that I feel like sort of exists in everything George C. Wolf touches is so apparent in Jolly's mm. Last Jam to me. And uh, I, I say, yes, the Tony's got it right in 1992. It was controversial in the moment, but Gregory Hines, I think really deserved that award for best actor. Yeah, no, I'm on board with it. I mean, again, a wonderful lineup and there's, there's an argument to be made for any of them. You know, Nathan Lane had, had had some off-Broadway success with uh, Lisbon Traviata and Guys and Dolls was his first big Broadway musical success and the show was a huge smash. Michael Rupert and Falsettos. Falsettos was a big community favorite. You listen, I mean, talk about when a show goes to perform uh, on the telecast and a theater filled of community people only respond. When Falsettos begins their performance, the entire Gershwin Theater is so pumped for it. Everyone's loving that Falsettos is finally here on Broadway and being a success. And there is a world in which Michael Rupert could ride that wave with it. Uh, and then there's Harry Groner, who had sort of, you know, been around in Oklahoma and in Cats and finally gets his own leading role in another big smash, doing like all the dancing in all of the world could totally win. But I think ultimately Hines is the choice. And I think Hines is asked to do the most emotionally Physically, he's asked yeah. just as much as Groner. And it is a show that is... Jelly's Last Jam is such an interesting show because, like, this show did well. It ran for a year and a half. It launched Tanya Pinkins and was critically adored and, and won other Tony Awards. But it's such an odd musical. Like, it's so... This is not a show that would probably last today like it did in 1992. You know, I, I'm going to push back on that one, though, Matt, because I feel like maybe couple years ago that would be true but i think like jelly's last jam is this like really dark and i think kind of deep musical about internal racism Mm -hmm. and i feel like maybe the world is more ready for it now than they were in 1992 um i I just think that george c wolf you know jelly's last jam and like a a wild party the original top drag underdog i think like everything george wolf touches there is a real sense of time and place and he really you know, and he wrote the book for Jelly's Last Jam in addition to directing it. Um, I think it's one of the smartest musicals out there and I would be thrilled to see it live. I'm kind of bummed I didn't go see it at the Signature um, mm. in Arlington when it was there. I, I'm a huge Jared Grimes fan. Um, but uh, I, I'm i a really big supporter of Jelly's Last Jam in general. And I think when it is revived, it will get it to do. And I, people will see it. 
I hope I'm wrong because I I love the show. And you think you're a, a George C. Wolf fan? I am a George C. Wolf fan. I will George C. Wolf you down the house, booze, honey. No, I George C. Wolf is he Heitner and uh, Mantello are probably my favorite directors working right now. And I did say on the podcast a few weeks ago that it had, I have not had a Joe Mantello production since the closed Virginia Wolf, and then they announced Grey House, so I'm, I brought that into existence. And now sure. I'm saying, okay, haven't had a wolf since Gary. I would like another George C. Wolf, please. Uh, and uh, we haven't had a George C. Wolf musical since Shuffle Along. Even when he does stuff that yeah, doesn't and it's always not work, fair. we need it. We need it. Even if he does something that doesn't always work, there's something to it. You know, he's rarely had failure failures. The uh, like the the only few I can really think of are like his revival of On the Town that no one really liked. And but people liked it enough to move the show from you know, the Delacorte to Broadway. Well, so that is okay. There's a there is a weird thing about when George was the artistic director of the public, which he was at the time that that happened. There was there was like a two year period. It's it was the back to back of On the Town and Wild Party, and in fact, I think the Wild Party that he directed had a bit more stink on it because of on the town, not just because it didn't do well, but because it wasn't super well received at the Delacorte and yet it still moved. And a lot of mm. critics were like, why would you do this? We didn't like it that much to begin with. And it only got worse oh, wow. in the transfer. And so then when wild party opened just straight on Broadway, a lot of critics kind of came at it with, Oh great. The public is just trying to get as much money as possible. It's going full commercial opening straight on Broadway which is unfair to that wild party like that that production never belonged in the Newman. Yeah. it belonged in the august wilson but i mean and then there's you know also just internalized racism and that end of like george c wolf getting all this shit as the artistic director while this is happening but again i say i only say this because like for anything he's done that maybe hasn't always worked for people there are just there are things about what he does that is compelling and fascinating and intelligent and I'm I'm always just down to clown with whatever he wants to do, and uh, I I love this musical. I think this musical is so good. And the other thing about this musical that I think would actually help is that with all the serious subject matter, it is still wildly entertaining. Like it, yeah. George C. Wolf has a theatrical flair to him that even when he's doing things like the Colored Museum or Angels in America, he's like, "But we will design it impeccably and have it flow like a musical." Because well, if you watch the B-roll from the original Angels in America, you will never see a funnier Angels in America. It's mm. like it plays like an out-and-out out comedy in a way that, like, sometimes I think the importance of that play is sometimes buckles under the importance of it because we mm -hmm. just think of it as such a you know we all read it in college whether we were theater majors or not, um, and I think that experiencing it in 1993 and 1994 when certainly it had a tremendous amount of um you know momentum and people were excited about it but that that b-roll always i'm just i catch myself laughing like yeah. it's just a really funny and fast play yeah no it's i i never like to say like it'll never be better than the original and angels is such a brilliant work that there are so many interpretations that i'm here for but i mean Kushner and George C. Wolf combined is always just a recipe for magnificence. And then that cast is incredible. And they do lead with fire and humor. And that is I always how Angels should be. Something I had an issue with with the revival, which I liked better on Broadway than at the National. At the National, I found it completely humorless. And then when they moved to Broadway in front of a New York audience, it's like they were reminded that there were jokes. And while it wasn't mm. as funny as the original, it was funnier than when it was in London. And I feel like if you are a drama, all dramas have jokes in them. 
Like there, 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 there's humor in even the most serious of shows. Just because you cannot sit for four hours and be depressed, you need something to disarm you. And humor disarms people. And Angels is a brilliant example of like leading with comedy all the time. I mean, just the opening speech from the rabbi alone when when they're reading the list of all the grandchildren's names, and I forget which one it is, but they look at it at one of the names and they go, "Huh, eh? this is a Jewish name." Eh, whatever, yeah. and like keeps going, and like that's a joke that disarms the audience. And all the um, Roy Cohn stuff with the phones. I love the, uh, you know, cats. It's about dancing, singing cats. You'll love it. Uh, it's, oh, God, I just love it. We're not talking about angels, but we love George C. Wolf. And I love Jelly's Last Jam. I like this win. Thank you for this win. My last one is very niche. Best orchestrations for the early modern Millie in 2002. I only say this because usually orchestrations go to whatever wins best score. Not always usually uh the exceptions tend to be revivals or when a pre-existing catalog gets reinterpreted somehow so like girl from the north country taking bob dylan and making it sound like 1930s radio or the kiss me kate orchestrations or moving out even yeah exactly um and here we have mama mia which does take a pre-existing catalog and and makes it more theatrical. We have Your In Town, which wins best score. And Millie is sort of half and half. It is an orig- half original score, half old songs. And the orchestrations don't necessarily reinterpret the pre-existing songs. But what the orchestrations do is that they unite the songs that are new with the songs that are old and help make it sound like one complete score. I remember when I saw Millie in 2002, not knowing that it was a movie previously, and not hearing any of the original songs afterwards for many years, I had no idea that Millie was half pre-existing songs. In fact, I think I heard the melody for Modern Major General from Millie first, and then oh, wow. and then Pirates like four years later. And I was like, oh, that's the speed test. I wonder if in this case, what was working against Urinetown as best score winner, but, but not the winner of orchestration, is the fact that those orchestrations are so spare and yeah. the instrumentation is just, I mean, it doesn't compare to Millie, or even like I think what my choice honestly would be Sweet Smell of Success, if only because I think it's just so. Um, oh my god, I just like love the brassiness of it, and I love how big it feels and how like nighttime it feels. It's very nighttime. I mean, again, talk. I I like this lineup for the most part, and they're all very different from each other. I do like that you're in town's very small orchestrations got recognized with a nomination. And I, th- I think because they are not big, it does work against them. But it's just so very vile. It's so Kurt Viley. Yeah. And I and it's perfect. Like, I think you make it any bigger of a sound and it doesn't work. Right. They chose the sound that suits the material. I just don't think it's the sound that, like, I, as we were saying, you know, best choreography, most choreography. It just, it's never going to win most orchestrations because it's just that's not the, that's not what they're going no. for. No. Honestly, the moment for me that clinches uh millie's orchestration win is the transition from not for the life of me into the title song that whole piece is just so broadway (laughs) in a way that like makes me happy to be alive which is not all every day so that is (laughs) that that transition is just so good and i'm like you know what you guys get it i'm just surprised that you would give this you know that you would honor doug besterman here who is so obviously a french woods boy Listen, I don't hate the French Woods children, Peter. I just think I'm better than them. There's, <laughs> listen, we don't have a best orchestration winner in our alum from Stage Four Manor, at least none that I know of. Better get on that. 
it's going to be me. Hi, it's me. I'm the orchestrator. It's me. <laughs> so my final thing, my final pick here for Tony's Getting It Right is going to be Best Actor in a Musical in 2007 when David Hyde Pierce won for Curtains um, uh, after Raul Esparza had won both the Drama Desk and the Outer Critics Circle. Uh, the other nominees were Michael Cerveris for Love Music, Jonathan Groff for Spring Awakening, and Gavin Lee for Mary Poppins, all of whom were terrific. But it really did seem like it was Raul Esparza's Tony to lose going into the night. Um, you know, this was his umpteenth nomination. He'd never won. There was, it seemed like on paper, the momentum was his. And again, this is 2007, the only Tony Awards I've ever attended. And let me tell you, in the room, it was very clear that the audience felt the Tonys had got it right when David Hyde Pierce won. The energy in that space when they announced David Hyde Pierce, clearly people were surprised and clearly people were really happy. I remember clocking that and feeling that in a very clear way. That is so fascinating. I can only tell you in the apartment of my friend Lily, we all were devastated. Now, to be fair, one of the children in the room with us was devastated on behalf, uh, on behalf of Jonathan Groff. And this is the first time in my memory where I became a jaded old theater queen, where I just turned to this girl and I said, honey, that was never in the cards. And then we went back to right. the actual conversation at hand. But it's, I again, it's the Anthony Hopkins Bozeman thing where it's on paper, it felt like it was as far as it's losing, as you say, in the room when Pierce won, the whole theater felt happy about it. It's it's one of those things where there's what people say and then what they feel. And everyone says, well, Raul's doing such a wonderful job in company, but everyone feels differently, you know? Like Yeah. And I think that David Hyde Pierce had a lot of goodwill. Number one, he you know, Frazier was done. He had come back to New York where he had began everything mm-hmm. and he returned to the stage and committed, you know, wholeheartedly to it. And I think people just liked him and were happy that he was like rejoining the theater community. Absolutely. And I think this was a show that people wanted to award in some way. And him as leading actor was the award that people probably felt best about because they could have done choreography, but they ended up going for Spring Awakening. They could have done, uh, you know, God, who has a featured actress for Ziemba, but obviously that was going to go to Mary Louise Wilson. I've had some listeners tell me that they would have given it to Orfe and Legally Blonde. And I said, that's a choice. I love Orfe, but it's Mary Louise Wilson. Understand that or die. And especially in a year like this where, you know, one musical is very much dominating. You have to try to spread out the love in any way you can. And in retrospect, it, it does make sense. But there, this is still a hot button topic for a lot of people. And you are very much opening the floodgates here by not only bringing it up, but by saying, well done, Tony's. I think they got it right. And I'm, I'm telling you that the feeling in that room was that the Tonys had gotten it right. I, like, it was, and I remember just feeling like a wave of, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much people wanted that. Mm. I, oh, God, there's so many ways I could address that last statement, but I'm not going to because the two times I've been at the Tonys, I went, so I went last year uh, where I was, I was part of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus and we sang a little tribute to Angela Lansbury and then we got to sit in the audience afterwards. And I think the only time somebody won last year where it did feel like 5,000 people were just fully on board and like thrilled was when Michael R. Jackson won book for Strange Loop. Mm-hmm. Just his his standing ovation 
was immediate. Whereas it took Patty like a solid 45 seconds to get everyone on their feet. And we love Patty, but that's just how it went. The And then the last time I went was in 2018 with Bands Visit, where, again, and this is where I kind of talk about in the old days when it was at a theater and it was like only 1,800 people. This time it's 6,000 people. So people can just buy a ticket. The like top two balconies were just filled to the roof with SpongeBob and Mean Girls fans. So anytime one of their nominations were announced, the mm-hmm. upper levels were going crazy and then Bands Visit would win and the applause would be fine, but not to that extreme of craziness. And so I don't recall, maybe other than Once on the Island winning Revival, there was no award that night where I was where I felt the energy of, oh, everybody wants this. Everyone's happy about this. So I yeah. I, I envy you with that experience. Oh, I mean, listen, I was in one of the balconies, so maybe it was a different story, but it really felt like the whole room. I swear. Yeah. Well, Raul Esparza still isn't over it. Well, who knows? This all people are loving Oliver. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I only say this because I think later that year he had the article come out in the Times where he talked about it and basically said like, "No, it was." Oh wait, I thought you were talking about the article because I think part of the I there was an article that came out that I think is part of why he didn't win. To be honest, oh sure, no, the, there was the, that, that predated it. Yeah, no, he had another one afterwards after he lost, and he talked about it, and he said, it, "You know, the next day or two, they went back to the theater, and Sondheim was there, and Raul Esparza was like." Oh, I'll get over it. And, and Sondheim said, no, you won't. Uh, and then said something along, along the lines of like, I'm still not over West Side Story losing Best Musical. Yeah, I read something once where Kathy Bates said, like, it's just never fun to lose one of these things in front of, you know, the whole country. And granted, she was talking about the Oscars. So yeah. I don't think the whole country is watching the Tonys as nice as that would be. But again, sure. I'm sure it's never fun to like, quote unquote, lose one of these things. But also, it's probably thrilling to be there. Like, good yeah. for all of them. I mean, we all want to be a winner, baby, but sometimes just being, in, I'm at a stage where I'm like, if I get to be in the room, I am thrilled. And so I, I look forward to the day where I'm no longer happy with just being in the room. I need to, I need to get the hardware. I need the pudding as Amy Poehler says it, it's pudding season and I want the pudding. Um, Fair enough. I think, I think that's all we've gone through. Peter, thank you so much. This has been delightful. My pleasure. This was so much fun. It was really great to talk to somebody else who cares as much about this bullshit as I do. I, listen, if I can make my brain understand medicine or law, I would go down that road in a heartbeat. But unfortunately, my brain works in featured actress in a musical land. That is how it goes. I know. Like, what if I could use this energy to better myself? But I can't. Better oneself in this economy? Please. On that note, we have a new review, y'all, that I would like to read. <clears throat> It uh, was posted just on Friday, and it is quite lovely. So, a moment, please, Peter. Hugh, light in the Piazza Overture. Five stars. The best Broadway podcast! Exclamation point. As someone who lives over a thousand miles from New York City, this podcast is the best way to hold myself over until my next trip to Broadway. I love that Matt is unapologetic in his opinions, and he's so knowledgeable, so he always has the facts to back those opinions up. Keep doing what you're doing because we appreciate it. Thank you, Erica. That was very sweet. I may or may not have guilted my listeners last week into writing more reviews because I've just been on an emotional whirlwind and like getting a new review keeps me from crying. And that has that'll keep me from crying for the next couple of days. Thank you, love. Um, Yeah, guys, if you like this podcast, give us a nice five star rating. Write me a little review so I don't cry. It helps with the algorithm and it keeps me happy. Uh, Peter, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Um, you know what? I left 
Twitter last fall and I haven't been back and my Instagram is private. So you're just going to have to click your heels three times, you know, sprinkle some salt into the wind and hopefully I'll materialize. That is a great game plan. I should do the same. Uh, if you want to find me, I am on Instagram only at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. I I think, yeah, this comes out Thursday. By this point, I will have my dual review of Camelot and Parade out. Uh, I'm holding myself accountable to that. If it's not out by Thursday, y'all can flood my DMs and say, bitch, get to step in. Uh, join us next, next week as we do another Tony's episode. Unclear what the focus will be, but it'll be something. And I'm trying to think what else I need to cover. Oh, uh, by this point, I will have guested on Kyle Marshall's podcast, Putting It Together, the music of Stephen Sondheim. I will be uh, deconstructing Everybody Loves Louie. Great song, killer song. We love her very much. Uh, Peter, we close out every episode with a Broadway diva. What Broadway diva would you like to play us out for this episode? I'm going to go with my gut. I heard Bernadette. Bernadette Peters. It's going to be Bernadette. Okay. Falling in love with love is falling for make-believe. I, my Bernadette Peters is just sort of like a zo- zonked out Alice Ripley. <laughs> That's funny because I always blame Alice Ripley and Bernadette Peters for whatever damage I did to my voice as a teenager. Yeah. The number of people who have just destroyed their voice trying to sing Tunnel of Love. And I, I, oh I salute you. I spent my teenage years, you know, playing that album and then like putting one butt cheek to the, the wall to play one sister and then turning around to put the other cheek to play the other sister. It's like, who needs Jekyll and Hyde when you have Sideshow? Exactly. I was I was talking to someone the other day actually about Sideshow and th- this is a straight person, a straight male person. And I, I bring up Sideshow and they, they just start laughing. They go, oh God, that Tunnel of Love song. And I said, I'm sorry. Have you not been finger blasted at a carnival while your sister feels the phantoms of your orgasms? Because if you haven't, then you don't get to comment on Tunnel of Love. Yeah, like, I mean, deeply relatable content. Absolutely. That is drama, honey. That is drama with an exclamation point sung to the highest of heavens. Uh, yeah, so we will do Bernadette Peters. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining. This has been a glorious time. And thank you everyone for listening uh, we'll catch you next week, and that'll be all for now. Take us away, Bernie. Bye. I fell in love with love one night when the moon was full. I was unwise with eyes, unable to see. I fell in love with love, with love everlasting. But love Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.